Hey, Adam. Hello. 100 episodes, man. Uh, finally. Finally 100 episodes. Yeah. I, I, I'm I having trouble processing it, to be honest. Like My favorite thing when I think about us getting to 100 episodes of the regular podcast, because we... We cracked 100 episodes overall a long time ago. We're closer to 200 episodes. Well, we have things but. like there are, what, nine episode 25s? Hey, you know what? Don't judge me. I- <laughs> well, no. it's it, it, that's in, If you bring in the specials, the mailbags, the campaign builder. The, touring the multiverse. Touring legend the multiverse. Lore. Legend lore. Like, We've done so much in two years. So much. And I'm, I'm immensely proud of it. I know you are. Um, I don't know how we edited that amount of shit. But no, when I look at it, I remember talking to you about the numbering scheme that we were going to do for episodes. Yeah. And you said to me, yeah, okay, we'll call this one episode 01. And I went, no, 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 Dan, 001. And you raised an eyebrow at me and went, we're not going to get to 100. And now here we are <laughs> at 100. And we didn't miss a week. So like I'm, no, we really didn't. I'm I'm proud of that, especially with like COVID and stuff going on. That first time we had to like, like the first round of restrictions. You and I sat down. We're like, how are we doing this? Do you remember running around like chickens with their head cut off, trying to find someone to replace Terry when he went on a work trip? Yeah, and we were up against the wall on let. Like, was uh, that the first had. time we had uh, Megan in? I think it was. I think it was Megan, and then Brad came next, yeah, or yeah. vice versa. I can't remember which one of them came first now, but. Um, and then, like, as an afterthought, we're like, probably Dave, I guess. Yeah, right. We, we've been calling him. He, he was the first one mentioned yeah. outside. Intern Dave. Intern yeah. Dave. But, like, it took him a while to to join on. Now we've got, like, we've got Grady. We've got uh, Brad. We've got Megan. We've got... Uh, oh, we've got a number of voices coming in with the Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. We've got a number of voices coming in over the next, oh, God, multiple, at least a dozen episodes. We're, we're kind of turning this into a bit of a production company, hey? Well, you know, it'd be nice if these guys would fucking edit. Yeah, right? <laughs> fucking assholes. <laughs> I just want to say, like, if uh, you are just listening for the first time now or you have been along for the ride the entire time Thank you so much. Um, I mean, ultimately, we do it for you guys. It's not just out of a sense of arrogant, uh, conceited pride that we just think you all deserve to hear our voices. We do this because we think we help. And you guys confirm that by, you know, getting back to us and reaching out to us. And um, we would not have made 100 episodes if it wasn't for a vocal, um, generous listener base. So, guys, thank you so much for going along the ride with us um and here's to another hundred i guess yeah uh, at least i as long as we are going to um continue doing this we will continue to expand and to come up with more ideas and we're going to mix things up and shift things we'll talk about that in a minute but we have evolved based as well on listener feedback mm-hmm. and and whatnot and that's why the mailbags exist and why we do our giveaways as troubled as our giveaways have been. <laughs> um, so, like, we we want to give back to the community. And um, we're going to do that by including more voices on the on the podcast as well. And becoming more of a community as well. And yeah. that adding more voices does not mean we're going to lose any of the voices that are already on it. We are going to just expand uh, and yeah. get more people and uh, see what we can do about making this more of an of a regular institution um, that people will come and listen to and lean on and have your favorite hosts like me and Dan and have your least favorite hosts like, well, Dave. And we don't say anything bad about Megan because Jesus, she's scared. Oh yeah, no, she'll end us. It's a mimic. 
the Roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to our 100th episode of the regular podcast. I'm Dan, and with me this week is Adam, and uh, kind of just Adam. Um, but This is the first regular podcast one. there's only been two people. Really? Yeah. yeah. Jeez. All right, well, uh, before we get things started, we've got a couple things to bring everybody up to speed on. All right, so the very first thing is, of course, our Call of Cthulhu series, which has a different kind of format with a bunch of fun opportunities in it because it is solo one-on-one sessions between me. I'm playing the Game Master, which is called the... Keeper of Arcane Secrets. Exactly, but nobody knows what that is. They just think it sounds like you're masturbating when when you say that, so... Because you are. Don't... There's a reason this is an audio format. (laughs) So, um... It's just me and one player at a time, which means we are building to another series. There are 11 different players that are coming on. Um, and You are a madman. As well as um, and 11 players, but 12 voices besides my own. That's right. Do that math. And so we are, as we are playing and we're moving forward, nobody knows what the other people are up to. Which means that when we come together with the miniseries, depending on who lives and who dies, yeah. then uh, we are going to have the audience actually have more information than the players do, which is going to be a load of fun for me as the person that's writing this this campaign to be dropping hints and clues and locations and yeah. NPCs. You know, when if, let's say, for example, Dan's character meets an NPC that betrays him and then Dan's character dies, he doesn't get to join us in the miniseries. When that NPC shows up, everyone else gets to listen to this. Yeah. And they get to know that, wait a minute, don't trust that guy. Right? So... Also, we're tying up a lot of the loose ends from Deep Dark of Radiance to help build a bigger world. And hopefully we're going to do uh, annual Call of Cthulhu events and shit moving forward. Yeah, that's so. that's that's the hope is right around Halloween time. Because, I mean, Call of Cthulhu lends itself towards Halloween yeah. very well. Yeah. So it's been, it's been lots of fun. Um, additionally, some of you may not realize that we have a store. Um, we don't like to pimp our shit out too much because it kind of makes us feel a little dirty, but if you go to the website... And not in the good Terry way of dirty. And not in the good Terry way of dirty. Um, and, uh, but if you go to our website and click on the shop button, you can find things like, um, It's a Mimic branded with the Deep Dark Radiance logo, the normal, uh, It's a Mimic Mike logo, uh, cups, t-shirts, masks, um, stickers. We've, we pretty much got it all over there. Um, we encourage you guys to go on over and take a look at it. Um, it's lots of cool. I, I, I have a mask myself with the It's a Mimic on it. So. Oh, the co- like COVID mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's lots of fun and it's a good way to support the show Be because this is not free to do. So <laughs> um, any help from either you guys getting swag that, you know, falls back on us to help us put on, uh, put on and produce the show. So, um, yeah. Thank you to everyone for doing for giving us the donations that you have through yep. the website. Um, we wanted to give an option for you guys to get merch if you're going to throw money at us, too. So. Yeah, might as well get something, right? Yeah, so that's Other what... than the joy of listening to our dulcet voices. Adam? Our dulcet voices, Adam. Also, there Adam. are some... Uh... Adam, our voices. I understand if you stop listening at episode 100. <laughs> <laughs> so, there are some other... Um, COVID-related things that are going on around here. There are some pretty intense restrictions that are happening locally. And honestly, things are getting a little isolation-y again here. Yep. 
that means the main podcast is going to shift in format for a little bit moving forward. But it's going to give us a handful of opportunities. So let me go through kind of what you guys can expect. It's going to be a little bit different. Mailbags are going to continue moving forward. A lot of the banter is going to um, unfortunately get pulled back a little bit because um, we're not able to all sit in the same room. Dan and I are staying in each other's social bubbles, but everybody else will be recording from home. Yeah. So a lot of the back and forth, the give and take is going to be lost. Um, honestly, having multiple tracks and multiple voices adds hours and hours and hours of work to the editing process. Exponentially more work. Yes. And so... Um, we, want, we don't want to miss deadlines, so this is our compromise with everybody. Uh, mailbags are going to include uh, everybody, uh, all of the six main uh, people now moving forward, which is going to be fun. Yep. We can cover a little bit more, but it means that um, the kind of crazy shooting from the hip nonsense that Dan, Terry, and I bring to the table um, may be muted for a little while. But stay tuned because I think that, um, that they're going to be uh, at least more informative. And we'll be able to trash talk each other and the other people won't be able to rebuttal. So there, there yeah, we go. Yeah, good times. Yeah. Um, also, we are doing Legend Lore. Uh, Legend Lore is going to be sporadic as Dan and I have time because we are more um, distant and we are not always going to be able to get in the same room. Mm-hmm. That means that the editing is going to be more intensive, which means Legend Lore will continue to come out as we get to it when our schedules give yeah. us the breathing room to do it. It's also a newer show for us. Um, we, we started it with, uh, Icewind Dale, right? Um, and for those who haven't seen it on the feed so far, it's basically Adam and I are taking a look at one of the published books, right? Um, usually a campaign setting thing. So if that's what you're going for, the Legend Lore series, although it will be sporadic, is going to be lots of fun for you because we're going through the books. Yeah. We want to give you guys insight on whether or not to buy each specific book and what to expect from buying it. Yeah. And using it for that campaign as spoiler free as possible or in your own homebrews. Um, Turning the multiverse, uh, we're looking at Theros next, but it has slowed down in the pre-production uh, Dave and I are working very intently on trying to figure out what happened to Jed. Yep. And also we are trying to build a series that is going to be as informative as the Eberron one was. Um, and with Theros itself, there's a lot of information we've got to go digging into Magic the Gathering for and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, with the distance, he and I can't sit down and carve out time out of the week to sit down and, and really focus on this. It's slowed. It has not stopped. It is coming. Just please be patient. It's on its way. Uh, the campaign builder is waiting in the wings to launch again. We're going to be launching it one tier at a time. Um, and I know that we didn't finish off this last year, but we're going to pick up on that when we uh, do our two-year anniversary. Yep. And then we're going to run for normally 25 episodes because that's how long uh, a specific tier does. Uh, this one will be 27 because we yeah. have the other two that didn't wrap up yet. They're edited. They're finished. We've already recorded the majority of them. So they are waiting there to get launched. And we're going to do one tier a year. Uh, so uh, for those of you that have been asking, Campaign Builder is coming back. It just got hit with all of this COVID shit. And it was a thing that had to go on to temporary hiatus. There were posts on social media about it. But I feel like a lot of people missed that. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, the actual play specials are on hold. Um, but we are using the opportunity to cook up side projects and stuff as well. Yeah. We just can't get in the same room, and there's something that is lost through uh, Twitch or Discord recordings. So Yeah, um, and we've got a few plans for some. I, uh, we got a lot of good feedback back from our Call of Cthulhu uh, miniseries. 
Um, and we're hoping to translate that into a, you know, 5e mini series of sorts that um, I will be running um, that we're building into. And then we are looking at other opportunities as well as we go with more new voices, more people that you might even recognize. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 been hectic and it sucks that it's kind of fallen on the wayside, but we are pursuing more actual play stuff for sure. Yeah, we're also trying to figure out what uh, what is going to work best for you guys in a podcast medium. Because we know, we understand that sitting there and listening to a bunch of idiots sitting in an echoey basement eating chips and and shooting the shit about things is not necessarily what you're in for for uh, what you want when it comes to things like your um, actual play and your live play content and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we just straight up do not have the production value or the money that Critical Role does or any of these other big... God, I wish. Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> Uh, I would love to be the Adventure Zone, but we just we just don't have it right now. So yeah. uh, we're going to try to bring you the best quality that we can with actual plays moving forward. And we're trying to figure out what that means for an audio-only medium. Yeah. So bear with us. That shit is coming. Yeah. Part of it is going to be the reconstruction of our recording space. So that should impact all of our products across the board. We will be well. dismantling some of Dan's more creative furniture. And putting up new creative furniture that can double for podcast uses. Swings, Adam. Swings. Help. When you donate to the website, please <laughs> please write in the notes section. Free Adam. <laughs> so, anyway, um, the last thing that we want to say before we launch into the main part of the episode is that the regular podcast, uh, this series itself, is going to do a bit of a shift over the next few uh, weeks, uh, potentially longer than, depending on COVID. We don't want to take any risks or put any of our people at uh, at risk. We also don't want to be encouraging other people to uh, to be doing that as well. So Dan and I will be getting together consistently to um, kind of anchor each episode, but we will be kicking out um, questions and segments to other people, Terry, Brad, Megan, Dave, and others as well yep. over the upcoming weeks. And we're going to do this for as long as COVID lasts. But frankly, we're going to lean into the idea of there being um, this army, this crowd, this mob of people working with us. And so we're going to be leaning in heavily into mobs and uh, mob monsters and how not only how to build them, but what they mean in the D&D landscape and how you can use them in a homebrew. So we're going to get into kind of the broad strokes of that today, uh, yep. but uh, we're going to take specific looks at them. I know that we have done orcs, goblinoids, gnolls, kobolds, bullywugs, and undead in the past. But those were really by the broad strokes as well. We're going to be getting down to nitty gritty. Yeah, we're yeah. getting granular with this. So yeah. um, so stay tuned, buckle up. We're going to focus on mobs during COVID because if we're all going to be in isolation, let's focus on the bastards that won't be. Yeah. So okay. so uh, that's that's where we're, where we're planning on moving for the foreseeable future. Uh, thank you so much again for sticking with us this far. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hope that what we have moving forward does not drop in quality or frequency, even if it does shift in format. Okay. Now that we've gotten through all of that, let's shift our attention to the bulk of the episode, which is going to be the mobs. The hordes, armies, crowds, tribes, conclaves, warbands, clans and houses, packs and cults, gangs and networks, parties and hosts, henchmen and minions, posses and swarms. Not like those swarms? Um... 
but you know, eh, fuck Sturges. Um, no, we're going to be talking about big groups of baddies, those that travel in groups and harass your party with dozens of weak attacks. This is your death by a thousand cuts, your overwhelming numbers, you know, the old dilemma. Would you rather fight a one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? We're talking about the 100 duck-sized horses today and what they bring to the table. What constitutes a horde? When and why do you use them? What are their strengths and weaknesses? And what are the best tactics for DMs and players when addressing mobs? So, Adam, mobs in 5e, we don't want to talk about um, building specific encounters. Um, no, but- we're going to get into that in each episode because different mobs have different encounter requirements. Yeah, so this is going to be kind of a broad, uh, broad stroke, uh, stroke, a survey of what the a mob brings to your game. So before we start talking about what a mob brings to the game, we have to understand what a mob is. Adam? Okay, so <laughs> thanks for just shoveling this at me. Dan. Yeah, no worries. So, this, this is what we call podcasting. <laughs> um, a mob is... There, there's one really basic rule, but then there's a couple of other smaller guidelines as well that get broken all the time. Hit um, me. The general rule is a mob is many individual creatures working together. Yes. But there are some guidelines as well. For example, almost all of the times they're sentient creatures. Uh, yeah. Not always, because you look at your zombies. You look at your myconids as well. They're sentient, but they also have that hive mind thing as well. Yeah, but as a general, uh, generally speaking, they are a group of individuals. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking as well, they have different tiers within them yeah. so that there are leaders and followers. They're not just one big hive mind or stampede. Again, this is broken for zombies and skeletons and whatnot. However, when you look at what the zombies have to offer, when you look at an undead horde in D&D, that includes skeletons of giants and ogre zombies and stuff as well so even though there's not a hierarchy there are different types yeah Uh, specifically in our discussion in fifth edition we're going to be looking at which mobs exist out there that have multiple different kinds of bad guys um, that are attributed to them for example it's not just orcs not every orc is the same there's like nine different kinds of orcs right the idea that um like I said, there's a million kinds of zombies. There are different kinds of myconids. There's there's many different kinds of goblinoids, right? Like yeah, and so and even even in that, there are multiple kinds of hobgoblins. And there's only two kinds of bugbears, which is strange to me. And it's not strange to me. There should really be more bugbears. You think? Yes. Oh, I disagree. Bugbears have always been one note for me. And that's a holdover from previous editions that I think should change. Fair enough. Yeah. Um. So, but. The idea of using a mob is for when you are sick and tired of those big encounters where you are just trading hit points over and over and over with one big baddie. Yeah. Right? And we're going to run into that over and over again in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. It's a combat-heavy game. That is a mechanic that people lean on. So you really have three different kinds of encounters that you can run into, um, like different combat encounters. You've got the one big enemy... The many little enemies, and then a mix, match mixture of, of the, the two, two right? Yeah. Um, and that's really oversimplifying it. But a lot of people run into major issues running the large group of smaller, weaker enemies. Yeah, and that's the other thing that I want to say about mobs. Not every member of the mob is weak. 
As a matter of fact, when you look into things like Drow, there are CR-18 and CR-20 members of that mob. Yeah, individuals of CR-20 that go in a mob. Like, you're not so, going to do well against this. No, and even when you run up against things like uh, like gnolls and orcs and goblinoids, they're going to max out about CR-9, but they're still a major threat at higher levels. Mm-hmm. At, at CR, when, when your party's level 17 or 18... Enough of these guys are going to be an issue, but how do you deal with that without breaking the game, slowing it down, making it monotonous? And so yeah. that's kind of what we're what we're going to jump into here. Yeah. So one of the things we do want to talk about uh, right off the bat is um, are what are the different uses of a mobs? We now know why they exist, what they bring to the table, um, what what are the different uses of the mobs um, now. We could go everything here from uh, scouting parties or guards or uh, hunters, but there, with such a broad spectrum of what constitutes a mob, the uses of them are going to vary depending on what your makeup of that mob is. So, do we want to talk about that a little bit here? Sure. Um, again, b- before we jump into this, I just want to I want to point out that. Mobs also have a reason for existing within the world, right? They, and that is why we, we look at the different uses of them. What is their purpose within the world? Because you don't just, at at low levels, people just throw together, oh, there are three goblins that are stealing a horse. Sure, that's fine. That's not a mob. We're talking about when you are behind enemy lines and you are heading into orc territory. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about when there is a null warband on the horizon coming at the at the roadside inn that you're on. We're talking about a demon incursion, right? Or you've got to go underwater. What intelligent races are under there, yeah, right? right? So there's a lot of shit that's going on. And there these are all different societies. Again, for the most part, zombies and skeletons are their own thing. <laughs> um, but... Undead, undead in 5e are often the exception to the rule. So, Which is odd because there's so damn many of them. Yeah. But um, it's just, it's really important that you know in what way these mobs react or, or interact with the world. And so that's why we jump into the idea that there are different ways to use them. Some mobs will really lean heavily into one thing or another. Mm-hmm. For example, you don't get a whole lot of um, null merchants. That just does not happen. No. However, that's totally on board with things like drow. So when you get into what the mobs have to offer, they will all have very radically different flavoring. And each episode that we do moving forward is going to look at the stat blocks that we're given, the unique stat blocks that we're given, and what that implies for how to use these um, individuals to build a greater sense of a unique mob. But generally speaking, we broke down to about a dozen or so different yeah. kinds of uses for these low-level mob monsters. You want to roll initiative? We can go through them. Sure, let's time. do it. Okay, well, we both got 18s. All right, we roll. I got we a, both got 12s. Oh, my God. Episode 100. I got a 1. I got a 3. All right. Damn, <laughs> so close to 3 in a row. Um, okay, so the first thing here, um, I mentioned it briefly, is your guard. Um, these are, I mean, to have a guard, you've got to guard something. So these are often going to be, um, you'll see them with like orcs protecting their encampment or, um, drow protecting their, uh, 
their massive societies or Durgar protecting their slaves, right? That's that's what you will see with a guard mob. But now, guards keep things in or out. But the thing yeah. about guards is they're stationary. Yeah, they're not they're not getting up and moving around because why would they? The thing they're protecting is often going to be stationary. You're going to run into these things when you are often trying to get past them or um, to get into something or to get out of something. Exactly. They are almost an environmental issue that you use combat to get past. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about guards too is while they are stationary, they're stationary in... Um, proximity to the thing that they are guarding. For example, if there is a caravan that is on the move, the guards are always within so many feet of okay. this portion of the caravan. Yeah. Right? And so even though the landscape is changing, the guards and what they're protecting are the same. A guard mob is also probably going to be one of the best to do a social encounter and avoid a combat encounter with. Yeah, they tend to do... Um, Social first. Hey, who goes there? Yeah. They're, they want to talk. They're not just going to be bloodthirsty. A lot of the times we have them be stupid, but it doesn't make sense. You would have stupid guards. No. Right. I never understood that trope. You want high perception, high insight guards. Yeah. Right. Um, this is also, you are going to want to have guards that aren't necessarily very brutal as well. Like aren't savage in the regard where they're, you move, they're going to stab you because you're a threat. No. Like I don't see Noel guards. No, absolutely not. They're, they're going to just run forward. and I mean, The same thing, you're not going to get zombie guards. But again, there's no reason that you couldn't have, um, if there's, say, Ianagu wants to protect a certain portion of whatever, a portal that he's bringing demons through, and then he's got gnolls with like metal collars on chains just dicking around the area, not able to... They're technically guarding the area the way the guard dogs mm-hmm. do, um, but that... So you, you can see that there's different kinds of guards that you can have. Well, if they're moving around too much, that's when they become uh, like into the patrols or scouting parties of things. But like for Knowles, the one thing I think I see Knowles ever guarding a Krokok or whatever it's called. That big... The Krokok Yeah. Oh, I don't think so. The Krokok can defend itself. You think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What uh, do you got? All right. So the next one is you mentioned it, patrols. But I would have hazard to say that while the guards do have this little area that they're moving around, a patrol, um, like a, a guard will will be in a room or anything that it can see within sight of. If it's guarding a door, it's never going to leave the line of sight. Yeah. A patrol has a route that it follows. It walks a route that it is specifically meant to, um, it's very similar to guard, but it is meant to maintain the status quo here. This is not about letting people through. It is about stopping everybody. This one is weapons drawn with a patrol. Yeah. Um, now, when you come to things like city guards and whatnot, that's a little bit different. But when we're talking mob monsters, a patrol like an orc patrol or um, hobgoblins will send goblins out on patrol or whatnot yeah. to make sure that their lands have not changed. Again, high perception, high insight but probably more beefy and brutal as a general rule. Yeah, these are the ones who are also going to uh, probably run down anything that's trying to change within their uh, within their scope of influence. Yeah. Right? Like if, if you are – if you as a party are scouting out a location and the patrol interacts with you and you, you know, bugger off to get away from them, they will chase you to a certain limit and then stop and go back to their patrol. Right. The other thing about patrols, as opposed to guards, is while guards will have a horn to call for backup, patrols will definitely send someone 
back to retreat to bring more reinforcements yeah. en masse to give a report of what's happening. I mean, I mean, a patrol could have a horn as well. Well, they absolutely both would yeah. have horns, but it's not just enough to say, uh, hey, you know what? We've run into something over here. Patrols are also about intelligence gathering. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a group of five goblinoids that are on patrol together, one of those is going to be a bugbear that is going to haul ass back to camp and say, hey, look, this is happening. So we need to bring three regiments in to do this kind of, uh, like, they're going to respond appropriately to what happens. Running across a patrol is a thousand times worse than running across guards. Yeah. I, I would also like to point out, um, with any sort of repetition in life, and you can see this from your daily job or even, hey, listening to the podcast and seeing how we were in earlier episodes compared to now. Please don't. Um you get better, you get more familiar, there becomes a recognizable process. So if you have an established settlement and you have routine patrols around it, they are going to be able to pick out even the most minor changes in their patrol because they're ultimately familiar with it, right? Your patrol is going to be the same 10 guys every single time, right? So they're going to be familiar, which means if there's an area around that has a patrol... Your party wants to be as minimal impact to the environment around them as possible. This is going to give you an opportunity to bring in a little bit of that exploration. That Um, ranger and rogue shit that we're looking for. Right? That is so often overlooked. If you are dealing with patrols, exploration helps. All right. So next on this list here are scouts. Now, scouts are... Patrols without any sort of direct route. They're going to be a little bit further out from whatever settlements. Often they will be accompanying an army as well. So if there's an army moving, uh, any group of people and you um, party of barbarians, monks, and rogues with that one dwarf cleric in full plate mail armor will understand no party moves faster than its slowest member. Yes. Right? When you have an army... It's going to be relatively slow moving. So Everyone moves at the same speed as Fat Mike. Right? So thank you, Fat Mike, for playing Anchor. You need to have, you know, Skinny Jim to go out there and do a scouting run. And that's what we have scouts for. Skinny Jim and Fat Mike. We are on top of our creative names today. Oh, man. I, <laughs> I really hope that it's, Skinny Jim sounds like what... So you're going to have these uh, scouting parties full of quick... Uh, often sneaky as well. Often sneaky because their entire goal is to get information and get back. Without providing information to. Exactly. A lot of the time they are going to be very fanatical with what they believe. Um, you may be able to bribe a guard. You're not going to be able to, to bribe a scout. So and it'll be harder to convince a scout to tell you what you need to know. Um, and so the idea that they're going to be fast, they're going to be hit and run. We're talking ranged weapons as a general rule. Or they're going to hit hard and fast like glass cannons so that um, by the time that you figure out what the hell just happened, they're already long gone. Yeah. Um, A a scouting party uh, is less likely to go for the kill. They're just trying to harry you so that they could get out and get information back to home base, basically. And a lot of the time, scouts run solo. Yeah, they're they're not really a fully fledged like ten person mob. There's definitely one. Something like when I run scout parties, it's usually about three creatures. If you're running a scouting party, but if I run a single scout, 
uh, out. Like yeah. if you've got a small mob of 20 creatures that are coming, they will only send one. They're yeah. going to send. Yeah. Well, it's know. proportional. Yeah. So um, that brings us into hunters next. Hunters are very similar to scouts, except they're focused. They know what they're going after. And um, as much as they don't have a patrol that they're on, they're very much tracking and following a specific quarry. Mm-hmm. Now, when we say hunters, people tend to think, oh, they're, they're hunting prey and whatnot. Right. The party is the prey. Yeah. When it comes to these mobs, these are going to be your hunters or your assassins, right? They're going to be the ones that go out there, your bounty hunters that are going to, um, you know, kidnap the mage in the middle of the night. A lot of the times they don't necessarily go for the kill either. Hunters will go to bring back a specific item or a specific piece of information um, and they're often, um, like we'll talk about spies a little in a minute here, but, uh, a lot of the time they're out there for either a single quick, uh, kill or a single quick objective. They're very surgical in what they are trying to do. And again, they're about speed, but they're also about self-sufficiency. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, efficacy. They are about their effectiveness. So, um, like we always say, you know, scouts get the information and leave. These guys, if if someone's going to follow your party for an extended period of time and stay hidden and just follow, it's going to be your hunter. Now, um, that will bring us on to travelers. Now, a, a traveling um, mob is another one of those opportunities that can cover any number of the pillars, often combined. Now, um, in base level, a traveler is a, a group of creatures just trying to get from point a to point b often your party will intersect with them on their journey they're not necessarily targeting you they are more that is a group that has a goal in mind uh that is where they're moving to a lot of the times they will have guards protecting them as well but a traveler when it comes to the idea of um armies and mobs and these uh, bigger groups, these travelers that run back and forth, these are the people that are uh, going to be hunting and fishing and gathering for the mob. They're yeah. they're out there, they're in the lands, they're moving around. A lot of the times I use travelers to be supply lines as well. Yep. These are going to be your low level, not necessarily minions, and they're not necessarily combatants. They can fight because they're out in the wilderness and they're by themselves or in small groups, so they're going to protect themselves. They're not going to be soft like Brad. They'll be hardy like Dave. But no, no, I Dave's pretty soft too. Oh, that's just because he's cuddly. Yes, but um, when it comes to to travelers that are out there on the road, they're not looking for a fight. At no point are they going to get in a fight, and they're going to try to get out of it using social and environmental tricks and uh, and tactics to get away. Right. So um, it's more than just what uh, what they're beefier than your average civilian. They're not nearly as strong as your hunters or your scouts. Yeah, they're they're not a militia. They. No. I often use travelers. Uh, you said as a supply line. I I kind of often do the same, um, but the supply that they supply is often um, items. I will subtly try to inform the party that they will need for the session coming ahead. Like they'll in, they'll encounter a traveler at the beginning of the session that is selling rare items or whatever it is that might have theme. Like if they're up to about to fight a Medusa, 
this guy might give out. Right, but in the context of mobs. In the context of mobs, they're often going to be, because they can bridge that gap between a combat or a exploration or a uh, social encounter. I lean more social when it comes to a traveler. Yeah, for the most part, which is why they will have guards with them because they don't traditionally um, fight themselves. Right. They're also opportunists. Yep. Now, something else that is um, worth bringing up is the idea of drones. Now, we don't have a whole lot of drones in mobs as a general rule. Um, You say drone and I think of the droning noise of Sturges and then I have flashbacks and, and I get cold sweats. So I don't like drones. I'm talking specifically about the members of the uh, group that have a single thing that they do. Miners, for example. When you've got a, let's say, goblinoid army that is moving up into the mountains to take over uh, dwarven lands, for example, you're going to have a certain number of uh, drones that are just there working the area. These are the guys that are setting up the battle encampments, Mm -hmm. um, pitching the tents and and making sure that the... um, the mounts are fed and that the guard dogs uh, have been, I don't know, walked, I guess. <laughs> right. So, um, but th- these are the, these are the parts of the mob that are going to train um, other parts of the mob. They are not going to be frontline combatants. They're nearly civilians, but they've got a very specific general role that they do mm-hmm. day in and day out. They're good for that. And that's all they're good for. You capture a drone and ask, where are you, where are you planning to go next? What's the armies? They have no idea. They are bottom of the barrel. Yeah, they could be like, well, I could tell you where the front gate is over there. The big sign that says front gate, that's that's the front gate. Yeah, so you do run into drones, and there are definitely some of them implied with the mobs that are available in 5th edition, but there's not many. They tend to just be relegated to NPC status, and they assume that you're going to slap, you know, a commoner onto a goblin stat block and say, there we go, that's your drone. That's the one that's going to mine for... Yeah. Or, or or whatever it is, right? So this is a really good opportunity, I find, to uh, have members of the mob flip allegiances to join you. I will often go with these drone level guys who will help you out with that same role in your camp after you flip them. Now, in any living, breathing world of uh, that you are trying to build for a D&D campaign... Your armies aren't just merely a bunch of soldiers moving. Uh, your mobs just aren't a bunch of militant combatants. We're starting to see that with drones, but you're going to fill the ranks with the civilians. These are people that are not combatants. They are uh, of the same um, like category of the uh, the mob, whatever it is. But they are often going to be the ones that are protected by the mob. Are they, they might provide some service, but it's not like their job. This is going to be your children. Your um, The thing that I think of a lot is when it comes to like orcs specifically. And you deal with things like the Tanneruk. They talk about how there's this demonic ritual that happens while an orc is pregnant. And then they give birth to a Tanneruk who is then treated like this way by the tribe. It's really sexist that almost every member of a mob is considered a he, unless they specifically say otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I do think about the childbearing people, members of the mob. that are yeah. coming They're not combatants. They're literally raising and bearing children. And so um, this is a part. Your your mob cannot survive without them. Unless, again, undead, gnolls. They don't have, you know, child bearers or child yeah. uh, rearers. But what they do have... Um, 
are people that are or ways to uh, propagate yeah. their own um, species. And so I deal with I think of a lot of that for civilians. These are the people that cook and clean for the mess hall as well. They are also uh, they run the risk of becoming scenery as well to a lesser extent. Um, yep. I'm I'm thinking like maybe like the weak and the infirm as well. Um, I don't see Knowles having a lot of civilians. No, almost certainly not. Although in a Knoll society, their civilians are going to be hyenas. Yes. They're, they're going to be dogs, right? So, um, but like I, I think of like goblinoids, the the goblins who either have gotten old or have def- like uh, physical defects or whatnot. That's a really bad way of putting that. The goblins who have gotten old or are in some way not in fighting shape. Um, they're wounded or injured. They're, they're wounded or injured hand or, something. or plagued or something, right? The, that's going to fill your civilian ranks as well. Uh, a civilian is going to be able to give you less information than a drone, right? And and that's that's the way to approach civilians. They're necessary for some of these more intelligent, more civilization-based mobs. Uh, for the more savage or mindless ones, eh, maybe not so much. I would say that there's really only going to be about three or four that we talk about that don't have civilians. Yeah, I um, would agree. As a part of them. So uh, after that, of course, there's slaves. Now... It's easy to say that the drow enslave other races, and so these these slaves become their own thing. But I mean, those are still Durgar or Svervneblin or humanoids yeah. that are not drow. But I'm talking about the slaves specifically that are part of this um, this society. A great example is the spore servants for the Mykonids. Okay, yeah, they are absolutely part of the Mykonid colony now. They are just enslaved and have no real free will that there are no agency in and of themselves. Another one to think about is prisoners. Mm-hmm. Now, when a, when an orc ends up, you know, breaking ranks or when a bugbear decides not to do what it's told and they end up getting jailed, imprisoned, they got to do hard labor, right? Prisoners and slaves. Um, they provide a certain role within the, um, the context of the mob. And a lot of the times you find that mobs enslave other people, mm-hmm. but they will definitely have members of their own society in there as well. I'm thinking like the half orcs in orc society most often would probably find their way into being slaves. A lot of the time. Yeah. And so what you can look at here is these are the counterculture members, um, almost like a nilbog, a nilbog mm-hmm. in a way is a kind of slave because they fill a very succinct role. They don't have a choice in it. And everybody else forces them to do this for a reason. They are there. And if they ever do anything but their role, they will be horribly beaten or even murdered. Um, and Harshly someone else will. Dealt with yeah. And someone else will come up and, and have to fill that rank. Right. So there are these second tier or third tier even citizens of your mob which act as hard labor or they do something that is beneath the regular mob Mm -hmm. and they are considered to be slaves. A lot of the times as well, this can be things like interpreters, right? Oh yeah. Or servants to Kings and whatnot. I I see a lot of, um, and I mean, it's not really in our mob list, but like dragons are going to have a lot of these as well. Um, And often they could end up being kobolds 
or other well, races. I look, as well. I look at like, like Bullywugs. The Bullywug Royal probably has three or four weak Bullywugs that run around carrying trays to them of food and stuff as yeah. they sit on the throne, right? So it's that kind of thing. These are the slaves. These are the guys that you're going to be able to flip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, next, and I mean, this is one of the ones we might have should have talked about first because this is going to be the kind of the bread and butter of your mob and this is your army. Um, I want to impress upon everybody not to just think of uh, armies just as uh, that, you know, baseline, super simple. we got to remember armies have hierarchies. Armies have uh, codes, usually. And armies certainly have purpose. When you look into hobgoblins, specifically in 5th ed, they have a real breakdown of how the army works. Goblinoids do, but hobgoblins specifically do Specifically do, yeah. And like, we're talking rank and file, right? So, um, when you're building your mob armies, remember that every single mob, depending on what type of mob it is, um, if it has an army, has a purpose, has a goal, um, and it's it could be something different than just uh, conquest. It could be revenge. It could be um, perpetuating an age-old war, right? It, it, armies are built for a reason. Now, yeah. with, with some things like Knowles, that reason is conquest. That reason is destruction and, and slaughter yeah. and bloodshed. But for, I don't, like, I, I think of... I think of an army of like uh, merfolk isn't going to be so much about uh, going out and accomplishing that goal. That is going to be about uh, solidifying territorial claim, right? Um, so you have to put a little bit more thought and effort into building your armies. The other thing that I look at when it comes to armies as well, very simply, very, very simplistically, I look at the old um, uh, real-time strategy games. Yeah, okay. And um, when it comes to these, you have your basic ground units, then you have your archers or your ranged guys, then you have your artillery guys, you have your cavalry, you have your... Like, and having these different kinds of battalions and platoons is also a really good way of of uh, giving the impression of there being a bigger, greater army as well, and giving you a lot of variety when you're fighting these different mobs in different ways, right? Yeah. Because they're going to have different uses... Having a whole bunch of uh, flesh gnars from uh, that are gnolls, right, working together is going to feel very different than gnoll hunters, right? But also having a group with a mixture that has one flesh gnar with three hunters is going to be something radically different as well. So. Exactly. Your armies are going to be widely uh, diverse in what the roles inside of it are. But giving them consistent... When, I, when I'm dealing with armies, giving them the same consistent... All of these monsters do the very same thing. This is a patrol or a battalion or a platoon that does this one very specific thing, mm -hmm. right? And then when I have different versions of that, you get the impression of an army a little bit more. The other side of armies is, of course, um, City Watch, right? Um, we've got the army that deals with the things without and the army that deals with the things within, Yeah, right? And so the City Watch is what we would have for humans and elves and dwarves and whatnot, but also Drow and Duragar are going to have these but you will also have things military police isn't quite the right way of putting it but hobgoblins orcs um merfolk are yep. another one they're gonna have people that deal with internal struggles right and so um like a marshal of sort that that deals with 
what's happening behind their own ranks. And, yeah. And dealing with deserters or um, or <laughs> yeah. people that got drunk or uh, while they were on duty or things like that, right? So armies have a whole lot more structure to them. The other kind of structure is cults, religiously motivated. When it's not politically or power motivated, it's religiously motivated. Let's talk about Kuatoa for a half sec here. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, but Knowles as well are cult-like. This is anything that believes in a higher power and that is fervent about their belief. The, it's not so much faith as it is um, complete and total insanity mm-hmm. following it no matter what. This is not, I believe in a God. This is, I believe that the only way to view the world is through this single God or demigod or demon lords specific narrow view of the world and everyone should follow that yes and so um that's when you have the like arch priest for the kuatoa but every kuatoa also follows the, in this cult yeah um and so you have a different sort of power structure here you're still going to have guards you're still going to have scouts and patrols you're still going to have parts of armies and stuff because sometimes it's militant mm-hmm. um you're still going to have drones and slaves and civilians but your power structure is different than it is when it comes to to a basic army because it's motivated by faith. And a lot of the time, you're going to end up dealing with celestials and fiends in and around this as well. Or great big crazy like Kraken level monsters. Yeah. Um, I would also put uh, forward that uh, one of the big differences I find between cults and armies specifically is um, faith Binds a group together far stronger than fear, um, I find. And and uh, we've seen examples of that in our real world. We'll see examples of that in our fake world, in our play world. So um, when it comes to social encounters with cults, it's going to be a lot harder to convince a, you know, cultist, a run-of-the-mill cultist to give up the faith and join you. Then it will be a um, mid-level commander in an army. It'll be it'll be far harder to do it with a cultist the other because thing, faith binds so much tighter to a person's being. Now the other thing about cultists is when you start dealing with cults, this is where you start to get into the magic. Yeah. While there are magic, like hunters will have some magic, and uh, hell, even some drones. Like it could be any anyone could have magic up till this point. Divine magic tends to be for cults, but not always. You look at the Nilbog or the Booyah 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 for the goblins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have they have warlocks. These are all arcane, right? And there's going to be a lot of that flavor in and among some of these mobs as well, depending on who they pray to. As much as the drow are all about um, having high priestesses and whatnot, and you think divine, they're also praying oh, they're- to Loth and and I mean, demon lords, and there's a lot of arcane magic. They're elves. There's arcane magic involved yeah. in them. Yeah. So, so finally, that brings us to um, one of the often overlooked side of things when it comes to mobs, and that is those single, high-skilled, high-threat um, entities that go behind enemy lines to gather information to aid whatever mob it is and these are your spies these are your um your con men of the mob basically yeah and they don't necessarily need to be like we think about oh they throw up an illusion or a glamour of some sort they pose as, as someone else and then they feed information back 
a spy can be someone that hides in the walls, mm-hmm. right? A spy can be someone who has been bribed, or a spy can be someone who, frankly, and uh, a large reduce spell. You can, let's say, you have a gnome or a myconid that's small size or whatnot, and you hit them with a reduce spell, and now they're up less than a foot tall. Yeah, and they are hiding under the desk and stuff like that. They've got a belt of reduce. <sighs> hiding in the drawer of the desk where right. you're having a conversation. That counts as spying too, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of the times spies will mingle in with drones and civilians and some of the other like travelers and whatnot yeah. that are not quite the same. Sometimes spies are scouts and they're double agents. Well, the thing about uh, spies I find as well is you mentioned that they're double agents. Um they're, they might not necessarily, like, if you've got a orc horde, a um, spy for the orc horde is, like, a half-orc or a human that uh, has been a slave or a drone that this is their job, right? Yep. But a lot of the times, too, the spies for hobgoblins are ravens, yep. right? Like, it, there are other creatures that can be, uh, that, that are a that's, part that's of this That's what I was trying to right? get across, yeah. yeah. So, um so I got a question. Sure. When you're dealing with these, how do you tend to build a mob encounter? Like, what does a skeleton of a mob generally look like? Are we going to roll for this? Um, sure. Okay. I got a six. I got a two. Um, depends on the goal of the mob. Right, but when you're building an average mob encounter, how do you? If I'm building an average mob encounter, um, I, I kind of break it down in... Um, Size, because when you are going up against a party, and this is 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, and we will discuss this further in depth later, action economy is a thing. And whenever I'm using a mob, I like to play action economy against the players, right? And that's kind of what I'm building. So I will have many lower level grunt kind of monsters. I will have uh, two or three, depending on what the encounter is, um, proportionally, right? Like for every... Five lower monsters. I have two mid-level, uh, mid-level monsters that are uh, specialized in some way, be they scouts or archers or um, just a little bit more hardy of a physical combatant. They get an extra attack, or they get, they or get they're wearing, faster. they get the better armor. Yeah, right, like those kind of guys. Um, and then I will have one commander. Now, often the commander can be anything from a exceptional fighter. To a spellcaster. I, depending on the um, makeup of the mob, will usually only have the one, like, dedicated spellcaster. Because the second you're bringing in magic, things are going to get weird fast and dangerous fast. It depends, too. Uh, yes, but it depends what you're dealing with. You're right. When I'm dealing with orcs, one spellcaster. When I'm dealing with Kuatoa, I'll, I'll have yeah. three or four spellcasters. Drow... Right? everything's a spell cast. Yeah, so it depends on your mob. Honestly, this is a this is a bit of a trick question just because it's going to be different for guards, right? A yeah. skeleton of, of two guards or three guards or six guards is going to be a whole lot different than a skeleton of an encounter for drones or armies or cult leaders or spies or scouts. Like, there's a lot. So when I, when I sit down and I look at what the skeleton is, I have to look at what the purpose yeah. of the mob is. But also the purpose of my encounter. Is this a direct encounter? Did a scouting party... Did I roll a scouting party or a patrol on a random table? And if so, how hard should this encounter actually be? Yeah. 
right? And so I start to look at these um, these different ways of putting together these uh, mob creatures. One thing that's incredibly useful for doing this is Cobalt Fight Club online. Okay. Um, but it really only includes Volos, um, Mordenkainen's, and the Monster Manual. So the way that it does is you say, um, when you go, I, seriously, everybody look this up. It's a free online tool that you can use. Um, Incredibly helpful. Yes. And it has a better idea of what um, a balanced encounter is than the CR mm-hmm. in a big way. So, for example, um, eight CR1 creatures does not a CR8 encounter make. Mm-hmm. That's a CR6 encounter because your guys are, you will scale up, your party will scale up in power faster than the CR will. Yeah. Especially and, when you're mixing and matching smaller uh, enemies together. And it lets you build encounters that are easy, medium, hard. Or deadly. deadly. Yeah. And based on the level of your party and how many people are in it. Mm-hmm. So it takes things into consideration like action economy and bounded accuracy and that kind of thing. So um, it's really helpful, but it does miss a lot of the shit that's out there from Tales of the Yawning Portal and Ghost of Salt Marsh and Eberron. And like we just don't get that information in here. So if you're running a Theros or a Ravnica campaign, you want to know how many um, Crassus monsters to put in at what level. You're not going to find that on Cobalt Fight Club. It it is fairly limited, but it's good for the average D and D player. It also doesn't have stats on it. It just says put these characters, these creatures together, and also hear the books to find them. Yeah. So, so um, I find that really useful. But you should really stop and think about what your purpose for this mob is. A lot of the problem that I see with mobs. Um, and I catch this on a lot of actual plays and the way that people talk about mobs on Reddit and on Instagram and stuff when they're, oh, I built this fun little encounter. They just throw these four goblins and a goblin boss. Yeah. What the shit is that? How does that fit into your army, to your goblin campaign, mm-hmm. right? When the goblinoid host is moving, when you want to use Knowles, you want to go and do a one shot with Kuatoa or Sawajin or Lizard Folk or whatever it is. Uh, when you are doing this, when you are building these encounters, you need to know why. Otherwise, a goblin fight is a goblin fight is a goblin fight. Yeah. And there are so few monsters in 5th edition. I know it feels like there's a lot, but there really aren't because of the way that bounded accuracy works and the way that they've really neutered a lot of the heavy hitters. They're relying on you putting together more intriguing, interesting uh, encounters based on the flavor and the context of the world. Yeah. So you have to have context for your mobs. Um, when you ha- are building context for your mobs, one of the things you will want to focus on as well, not just what their goal is and putting a little bit more thought than just sprinkling goblins on the battlefield. Um, you also want to think of the environment. I know um, on our Reddit recently, a uh, post was put up about um, environmental dynamic encounters right what was it called dynamic locations dynamic locations right so um shout out to alexander and other skip davis for that one but uh the this is just as true with your mob encounters as it is with just itself as an isolated thing environment plays so key where you meet a uh, mob is almost as important as why you're meeting a mob right so if you're meeting a goblin raiding party inside of a city, that's going to have a far different tone to it than a goblin raiding party in a set of caves. True. 
right? So this is something you want to put into thought with your environmental encounter or with your um, mob encounters as well when you're building the skeleton of a of a mob encounter. I agree. Cool. So we're going to move on to a commercial now. And then when uh, it is done, we'll go over kind of broad uses of the specific mobs in D&D 5e. Hey, so just really quickly, I don't want to spend too much time on this 100th episode dealing with our own personal pimping of our shit, but we are doing a giveaway right now on Instagram. It's good until the end of the month, which is December 2020. Mm-hmm. So get in there, share, like, comment, tag friends, uh, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to capitalize on this uh, giveaway as well. Make sure you tell your friends and other people because the more people that you include, the more entries you get into the giveaway. Good luck to everyone that's entered, and uh, check online for the details there as well as the prizes. Okay, Adam, we've got a uh, rather extensive list here of mobs and their general uses, a general um, idea of the flavor towards these um, different groups of mobs. Let's roll the dice. I want to figure out who these guys are and what are their general purposes in D&D 5e, okay? Yeah, what is the overall broad stroke, like a different flavor of them? Exactly. So let's grab the dice and roll. I got a 16. I got a 14. I'm going first a lot. So I'm going to go first with my favorite. My by far favorite uh, mob enemy uh, group in the game, orcs. There's a reason why I'm Oscar the orc. Orcs. I love orcs. Um, Do you like orcs? I love orcs. They're so much fun. Um, And I have for many years. So um, orcs fit into your campaign as that um, wandering, almost nomadic threat to your world that um, if all of the orcish tribes come together, it would be a severe threat to your world. The way I view these, they are often going to be, um, I play them a lot like, You see them in Lord of the Rings where they're just vicious and big and intimidating and militaristic. Um, But they also have this very spiritual feel. So I I play a lot of them with an indigenous kind of feel to them as well. Um, They have uh, a huge spiritual aspect to them. They've got ritual inside their camp that they follow, right? Um, yeah, I find that they are a very superstitious and spiritual people. Yeah, when dealing with themselves, when dealing with others, they're they are brutal. And they're barbaric. And barbaric. Yeah. So, um, to use them in a campaign would be a uh, uniting of the orcish tribes under I don't know the banner of Grimsh or whatever it is, right? For a uh, expansionist, the establishing of an orc kingdom or whatever that has. So. All right, next up, because there are a million different kinds of mobs. It doesn't feel like it when you flip through the monster manual, but holy shit are there lots. Yeah. So um, next up is goblinoids. Now, goblinoids really capture three different kinds of creatures. There's goblins, which everyone is relatively familiar with. Most people treat them like gremlins from the movie Gremlins. Mm -hmm. They're not by a damn sight. They're not like that. Um, That's Pathfinder goblins are. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pathfinder goblins are like obsessed with killing dogs and horses and chanting and they're obsessed with fire and they've got this kind of wild, chaotic, uh, they're a bunch of wild and crazy guys atmosphere to them. The 
goblins in 5e have goals they have a hierarchy um they were they run around like street level gangs like yeah the, the way that people thought about gangs in the 80s that is how that is how goblins run there is definitely a weird sense of pride mm-hmm. there's definitely the idea that they want more they just don't manufacture it themselves um but they're sneaky they're crafty they're they're full of thievery as well as bugbears as well bugbears are part of the goblinoid host and um, they're they are brutal savage but like, they're but they're also sneaky and a lot of people see them as being large with long reach and they don't think about the fact that these guys are light on their feet they are they stick to the shadows they are about um hit and run tactics because they're super lazy and non-confrontational they will bully the shit out of someone they know they will beat yes they're but smart if, but if they don't think they can beat them that's not worth the effort and then there's hobgoblins which um kind of run um the militarized side of this they're very uh militant they're all about honor as well they've almost got a samurai feel to them yeah they're very regimented as well like they uh where there is kind of this feeling almost a lack of discipline within a goblinoid horde goblinoids themselves uh sorry uh, hobgoblins themselves defy that they are they are all about their rank and file they're all about their position and honor and so when it comes time to bring the different goblinoids together when they get the call it's hobgoblins that run the place they use the bugbears for their brutality um over the goblins because there are more goblins than anything else yes so um the bugbears keep them in line and the hobgoblins have the long view overall when a goblinoid host comes together the landscape is fucked mm-hmm. it's in a really really bad way so keeping them all separate and infighting and out for their own personal um, goals is what keeps us from being overrun by goblinoids. Okay. Uh, there's, I mean, you can't go to goblins without then talking about a kobold mob. Kobolds are fanatical. They're smart. Um, but they're also cowardly <laughs> in a certain way. So um, the way I kind of look at kobolds, I kind of play them the way I see Ewoks in return of the jedi they're going to use uh they're they're well aware of their size and how that is a disservice of to them so they're going to have traps they're going to have um large uh inanimate machineries that are going to cause your party issues and then they're they're getting out they're really hit and run tactics based with traps they're going to use their small size to their advantage as well to be able to hide and be sneaky and also to move through small, narrow spaces. You deal with a lot of kobolds and ancient ruins and underground w- warrens and, yeah. and whatnot as well. So I find kobolds as well are often going to be like the foot soldiers for a dragon. A single thing. So if I want to have a dragon cult, there's going to be kobolds in there somehow. Right? Um, gifted by the dragon to the humanoid dragon cult. Right? Uh, yeah. So... That's that's kobolds. After that is my personal favorite, and that's gnolls. Gnolls are hyena men. They're bigger than you think they are. They're like seven feet tall. They're huge. They're bigger than orcs. And a lot of people think that they're kind of lithe and small, the size of elves, and they're not. These guys are massive, and they are all about brutality. And and these guys will gnaw their own leg off to get out of a trap without thinking twice about it and keep on coming. Yeah, they exist because a demon lord Yinagu who is the like the god of butchery and slaughter. Yes. He that that's his whole deal. He came to the Primaterial Plane. Uh, he's kind of hyena-esque in his own way. Yep. 
And um, he ended up slaughtering a battlefield. Hyenas fed upon his kill. And then they were, quote unquote, blessed. Uh, and they merged into, they morphed into these uh, these gnolls, right? And now gnolls run around as fairly stupid. They're they're not well read. They don't have time for reading. Yeah. They're, they don't really seem to be based on any sort of magic whatsoever. They're not spellcasters. They run around with this innate ability to be as vicious and rampaging, crazy, uh, slavering monsters as possible. And I love them for that. They are a truly environmental issue. They will fight to the last person. They will never retreat unless it is to get more to help the slaughter. The thing I love the most about Knowles is because of this uh, abyssal uh, taint on their life. Um, <laughs> taint. Uh, they will also, when they die, their skeletons get back up as witherlings to com- continue this sense of slaughter and that's going to branch over into the next form of mob which is your undead horde now there are many 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 different ways to run undead because pretty much everything can become undead and uh your beholder zombie is going to function differently than your ogre zombie the other the other thing to keep in mind too is that the zombification and the skeletal um, which is what most things turn into. I mean, there's ghosts and whites and other things. But for the most part, we're talking zombies and skeletons when it comes to mobs. You just get modifiers to your stats. Yeah. You can still be... If you've got an intelligence of 20 and you become zombified, you still have an above average intelligence. You may not be able to communicate, but you are still a functioning uh, creature. You are not just a, a shuffling horde. Yeah. Um, now... There are a variety of ways you could run. I I think of zombies because there is there's kind of two trains of thoughts. There is the you know Romero slow moving, which is almost what D and D zombies are. Which almost. almost. Um, and then there's the twenty eight days later, which is not at all what D and D zombies. Which is are. not at all what D and D zombies. A twenty eight days later zombie is a ghoul. Also not a zombie, just an infected person. Just an infected person. Yes, but. Still, um, that kind of cult, that kind of uh, flavor to them has changed. If um, you want the fast-moving zombie, look to Knowles. Yeah, that that will fill their rage-filled. It's technically alive. You shoot them in the head, and they will go down, and then they may pop back up with more rage in a minute, right? Yeah. But like, that's that, that fits that same niche. Whereas that's not the case. The zombies in D anD D are almost Romero zombies. Headshots don't work. Well, they've got that weird mechanic where depending on how much, like, depending on what you roll as a DM when they go down, they could get back up. Yep. Regardless of the amount of damage they've taken beforehand. And this could just keep happening if the DM's dice are hot. Right? I have had a full-on death spiral happen with a trivial zombie encounter because the DM's dice were hot. So this is something you got to look after, especially when you start dealing with things like... Beholder zombies that have ray attacks still, right? Yep. So um, now this is also going to bring in your liches and your vampires and your higher level there, undead yeah, as well. There are but, all sorts of undead that will run the zombie or the skeleton hordes. But for the most part, these guys are just mindless drones. Yeah. There's not a whole lot that they're doing. Um, they can do more complex tasks. They can use weapons, for example. But they're 
which is why they're not quite Romero zombies, but they're not crafting schemes unto themselves, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Um, they tend to be guards. Oh yeah, quite often. Uh, next up is the first kind of fiend mob, and that's devils. Um, devils are we've talked at length about devils on the podcast in the past. Very simply put, devils are simply um, law and rigid militant level of fiend uh, from the lower planes. If you kill one, they don't die. They just go back to the lower planes, get respawned, and try to find their way back to the material plane. Now, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you kill a devil... You're wrong. When you kill a devil... Rude. When you kill a devil um, and it goes back to the lower planes, does it... Like, say you kill a bearded devil, does it go back to the lower planes as a bearded devil or does it have to re-rank up? No, it goes back as a bearded devil. Okay. So, and then it tries to find its way back. And that's true for... Every kind of fiend. You want to kill a fiend, you have to go to the lower planes to kill them there. And like their home plane on the lower. Yeah. Right? Like if you kill a um, devil from Dispiter on in Bale, you're going to, it's just going to go back to Dispiter. No. No, no, no. Anywhere in the Nine Hells. You think? I know. Okay. Anywhere in the Nine Hells. So it's Nine Hells based. You, you have to go back to the plane of existence. The Rakshasas have to go back to where they came from. Night Hags as well. I have to go back to Gahana. Um, and so that's that's just true of absolutely all fiends um, and celestials. When you kill a celestial... It's just going back up. And then it will come back down. It'll find a way. It's just easier for, for celestials to come down than it is for, for fiends to come up. Yeah. Um, on the other end of the law and chaos spectrum, we have the mobs of demons. Um, demons seek to destroy and corrupt in whatever realm they are in. So they're far less organized and uh, tend to approach their problems with a wall of force rather than a wall of um, like regimented power moving on. When you're dealing with the different armies between devils and demons, devils are rank and file military army, whereas the demons are a militia. Yeah, they are a horde. And they, yeah, they will use overwhelming numbers to get what they want. Devils tend to be more powerful. Better trained and... Smarter. Much smarter. Able to strategize in ways that most demons do not. Some higher level ones do, but most yeah, a, of your... Anything below CR6 or so a, tends not to. A, a devil will be like, well, if we grab this pit fiend, we could do this uh, very intricate operation. Whereas a demon would be like, just throw more Garistro at it. Yeah. Brocks. More Brocks. More Brocks. All yeah. the Brocks. Um, the last kind of uh, fiend mob that exists is the Yugoloth. Yeah. So there are lots of other different kinds of fiends, but they tend not to move on mass. Yeah. Right. So, um, so Yugoloths are mercenaries. They're just fiendish mercenaries. Mm-hmm. They're in it for themselves and only for themselves, almost financially. Like if you could pay them, but they're not just going to go for gold. No, it takes a little bit more than that, and it's not just souls either. They want status. They want magical items. They want to get more than just um, what's at the surface level. And a lot of the times. They will sign a contract because a contract serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. And that purpose is not even a part of the contract. Yes, I'll help you wipe out that kingdom. But because if that kingdom falls and this kingdom over here will gain more power and they owe me an old favor from way back in the day. But, and it, it starts to extrapolate outwards. They're big schemers as well. Yeah, I would say they have a far bigger over like overarching plan than even a lot of devils would have. Yeah, your devil lords will have a higher overarching plan than yeah 
But I mean, we have this tasty nugget that is the general of Gehenna, this unspecified threat. Which I would absolutely love for them to specify in fifth ed. Yeah. But I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Okay. Um, I mean, let's get into the uh, the other side of things. We ha- we have our winged hosts, our, our celestials. Our, oh, I thought you said winged toast, and I no winged winged hosts. Okay, uh, our celestials. Now, um, we've said before that D and D five E puts a lot of thought in fiends, not a whole hell of a lot of thought into celestials. Celestials and- have fewer kinds of monsters than anything else. There are more plants. There are more oozes than there are celestials in fifth edition. So D and D fix your shit. Um, I, I want to see Celestials because remember, they're still extraplanar beings. So if you are a good party, you could still have to fight a good aligned Celestial. Like, because often people think Celestials are going to be good and they are good in their own sense of good. Yeah, they their morality not, is not yours. Is, exactly. So often that could come to a head in fighting you. A lot of the times fight. people play angels as being um, self-righteous. Yep. And that tracks in a lot of ways. That, the other yep. thing to keep in mind as well, and a lot of people see the angels portion of the monster manual and say, oh, that's all. Because there's not a fuck of a lot in Volos or Mordenkainen's either no. for Celestials. But the moment that you start to head over to places like Eberron, Ravnica, uh, even uh, Matt Coville's book, uh, which is Strongholds of Followers, the first one. Yep. They've got some badass awesome angels and celestials in there and there's some really cool shit that's hidden in the other books to look into now i'm going to be really open and honest about this i have no intention of covering fiends or celestials at all as we talk about mobs moving forward we've covered fiends Mm -hmm. and while i do believe they weren't more of a discussion they're their own unique kind of beast yep beside just mobs like they operate on a different level and Celestials are all high CR. If you run into a horde of angels, they tend to be background environmental issue as they come down and try to save a city. Yeah. Right? Or they try to take on a, a demon host. Right? So you're not fighting seven or eight angels at once. Even low-level angels, four of them will fuck you up. Yeah. Like, you're just done. Yeah. And, I mean, th- like I've said, this is a kind of a blind spot in the... Um, construction of D&D 5e. There needs to be some lower level. I want to see the equivalent to angels as we see with devils and demons and how different, and Yugoloths, how different in tone they are. Um, the other thing that's alignment based, which is a little bit different than the good versus evil, is the completely lawful um, monodrones, duodrones. These are your modrons. Yeah. So modrons exist in a state of pure lawfulness. They are regiment and order. To the nth level. To the point where they have difficulty even acknowledging or understanding that beings, uh, that other beings exist outside of things that are just directly related to them. Yeah. They only see what they are programmed to see. They have a real mechanical feel to them, um, but they are actually um, just pure beings of law and order, and they are... I think it's it's hinted at that they make the the multiverse, the universe, the the cosmos that they, they make the whole thing work. Mm-hmm. They are literally behind the scenes and between the cracks of reality, keeping things moving forward. Yeah, a lot of the other planes of existence have flavors of the stuff that was born in Mechanus. Yes, right. And the 
where whereas your angels and your devils and your demons and stuff are they're concerned with the afterlife and morality where you're going to go and the corrupting people or saving people Bodrons don't care they don't give a shit about morality no they're there but the balance of the universe mm-hmm. and keeping all things in balance so on the other side of the uh, cha- uh of the neutral spectrum where you have your lawful neutral you have your chaotic neutral that is going to be your slotty slotty we don't really they don't really fit that mob mentality so it's just a bit of a broad stroke here but they do go against the um the armies of mechanists in every sig- every single conceivable way and have a rich depth history to them yeah uh, look the slot is a whole other conversation to have it yeah at a later point but um they're not quite a mob because no. they're they're like angels right they're just a little bit too powerful yeah um and so if you run into a mob of slotty you're already screwed your base level slot i believe is a cr8 so like you're you're in trouble from the get-go yeah so you're not going to run into a big mob of these guys um the same way that um giants while they do fit the criteria of a mob, there's different kinds of them. There are uh, they can move on force. You run into societies of them. Mm-hmm. They have scouting parties and guards and stuff like that. They're so high CR that you cannot run them as a mob. No, I actually ran an incursion of eighty eight giants all teaming together to to attack a city, and it was utter sheer madness. Yeah, just. When you're dealing with waves of goblins, it's got a slightly different feel than waves of storm giants. Yeah. And so giants are their own unique things. And because they're all different the way that the different goblinoids are different, we're not going to cover them as, as mobs. The same way we're not going to cover fiends or celestials. Okay. Um, but the next one, let's talk about our uh, anthropomorphs for a moment because there's a fuck ton of them. I'm not going to say that word. Anthropomorph? I, I, I will butcher it. Come on. Give me a shot. I'm like hesitating. No, come on, like, come on, come on. Anthropomorph. You're close. Yeah. yeah. Here, have a cookie. Yay. Um, so we kind of already hit that with kobolds a little bit because they're dragon people. Yep. We already kind of hit that a little bit with gnolls because they're hyena people. But they've got a little bit more to them. So let's get into the other ones. The first one is lizard folk. Lizard people. Yeah. These guys are crocodile people. Honestly, yeah. more than more than lizard people. They don't look like chameleons or geckos. They're not salamanders. They are crocodile people. Yeah. And so... Um, they have very, I mean, lizard brain. That's where the term comes from. They're, from what we've read in, in 5e, they're very, um, they're almost mechanical and like, they, they don't think they're, individually. They're, no, no, they're pragmatic. If, yeah. if it has a use, then they will use it. If not, who gives a shit? And they will move on, right? Um, I think of them almost like the Borg. Yeah, yeah. Right? So if you're not a threat, they will just move right past you. They may take interest to look at you and to probe your weaknesses for a moment, but they're not interested. If you've got nothing to add, what the what the hell's the point? Right. Um, however, you probably add the idea of food because they're cannibalistic. They will straight up eat people because we don't let anything go to waste. They will eat their own fallen comrades. Mm-hmm. They are just pragmatic to the nth degree. Uh, they are almost alien-like, and they live in swamps and these weird, like... Um, portions of D&D world that are on the fringes. When you run into a tribe of lizard folk, you know that you are away from civilization. Yeah. So it really does give you the idea of um, of adventure on the fringes. I like playing my lizard folk just as, as a form of inspiration as uh, 
I, I like embracing the bayou feel of them. They're almost always in swamps. They're almost always in that atmosphere. But they, they've got that um, Louisiana horror feel to them. Yeah, I don't mind them. I like to reflavor them for uh, for deserts as well, so that they've mm-hmm. got an alligator on the Nile yep. kind of feel as well. But you really do feel like you are away from civilization. But the thing about lizard folk are, because they're pragmatic, they're not evil. They're just true neutral. Mm-hmm. And they will be true neutral. And they can realize that you are allies, at which point they will become fiercely loyal. Because even if you were an ally before and you're not useful now... You may be again, like you were a useful tool. We we had one of these as an ally in our uh, last D&D session, uh, or last D&D campaign, which was two of four, which we just named Bogo. He was essentially a lizard folk, wasn't he? No, not at all. He was a serpent folk. I literally stole him right out of uh, Pathfinder. Oh, okay. I wanted something besides lizard folk. So um, along the lines of your lizard folk, you um, have... Probably one of the more interesting, well-developed uh, anthropomorphs in D&D 5e, and that is the concept of UNT. Uh, UNT, their own entry in Volos. They are a heavy focus, like we have said, of Tomb of Annihilation. Um, they often tend toward the cult than the army. They absolutely are cult-like. That yeah. is their whole thing. They are in service of the snake gods. Yeah. And the crazy thing about them is that they're human. Often, yes, that have been twisted and... No, always, yes. They are twisted humans. That is their that is their backstory. Huh. They are humans that, uh, I mean, generations ago... Yes. In, ...in service to the snake gods have been twisted, and now they have aspects of snake-like things. But they're consistently, they're warping in different weird snake-like ways. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you get a little bit of this flavor with the Simic hybrids, but really it comes from the Yuan-Ti, where you have, like... They're Malisons, which some of them have snake arms, some of them have long snake necks, right? Like they 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 fit that feel. And if you want to have a creepy snake penis, snake no, we're uh, all thinking no, it. No, I was going with snake themes. Uh, several arcs, like uh, Copperhead sessions. <sighs> Trying to do a thing, Adam. I'm sorry. Um, tell, tell me about your black mamba. No? Move on. Does your King Cobra have a hood? Just do it. All right. Just move on. So there's there are <laughs> UNT, and they are very, very cult-like, but we're talking about pyramids, um, <laughs> and there asshole. are a whole lot of different kinds of, of UNT as well between um, both Volos and the Monster Manual. You're right. This is by far the most fleshed out yeah. of the anthropomorphs. That we've... Oh, uh, yes. Uh, you can make an argument for kobolds or, or gnolls, but the strict anthropomorphs are... Like, you lean on UNT, and they're freaking weird. They're body horror weird. Yeah, they, they really, really are. They lend into that horror campaign I'm excited well. to talk about UNT in the future. The next one, when we talk about anthropomorphs, this is a special, unique thing, because this is a group of smaller um, packs, almost, is yep. the lycanthropes. There are... Do you, do you know how many lycanthropes there are I, in 5th Ed? I want to say seven or nine. There are seven and nine, depending on your point of view. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so that's hilarious that you pulled those numbers out of your ass. By the strictest um, rule, there are seven. Five of them are offered in the Monster Manual. you got to look in like the weird-ass end of some books. Well, like, uh, you've got... Okay, let's... Uh, we're talking your were-blanks at this point, right? Yeah. So you got your were-wolves, obviously. Yeah. Wear bears. Sure. Wear rats. Yep. Wear tigers. Yep. Wear ravens. Okay. 
Where boars is the one that where you missed boars, from, yeah. from the Monster Manual. Where ravens are Curse of Strahd. Where bats, yeah, which are goblins that have been struck by by lycanthropy. Yeah, that's funny. And they're in uh, Mad Mage, I believe. Okay. Um, and then you have the pseudo one uh, lycanthropes that are part of the conversation but don't really count as true lycanthropes. Your jackal wares, okay, which are demonic uh, jackals that have been cursed by demon influence uh, they got a yanagu feel to them that can turn from jackal into human to pass as human but their natural form is jackal so they're almost reversed yep and then you have your shifters of course yep. from eberron so these are part of the conversation for lycanthropes as well you don't have were rats and werewolves hanging out together they're all very xenophobic they live in their own little packs and groups and whatnot but you go to curse of strahd and you see full mobs of werewolves and were ravens right? and like you you tend to get the idea of what a uh group of were bears look like were rats are all over um fifth edition too I, I find they they are the ones who like they still live in sewers when i play were rats like i still think of I, for some reason other ninja turtles when i think of were rats but no, the thing about were rats themselves is that they tend to be used as low level thugs. Yeah. With a couple of other just like generic. That's the thing about Forgotten Realms in Fifth Edition is they tend to push all of these creatures together in these um, multicultural metropolitan areas. Whereas you get into the flavor of the books and they're all xenophobic. They don't want anything to do with each other. Yeah. Right. So you're water deep that has a couple of were rats living in the sewers with a Duragar and two humans and a goblin. Not by stock for any of those things yeah. would that ever happen. But That's because okay. it's water deep, it tends to, to work in this in this direction. So your lycanthropes are like seven to nine very different conversations with very different feels and alignments and mentalities and tactics to them. So don't just think that a werebear is a bigger werewolf. It super fucking isn't. No, they've got a different feel to them as well. Very much. And there are, for each one of them, there's two different kinds of lycanthrope, right? There's the ones that embrace it and the ones that deny it. And then there are the the animal form, the hybrid form, and the human form. Like, yeah. it goes deep and depending on on how you deal with it, it's likely that you'll never run into more than three werewolves at a time. Except in Curse of Strahd. It's, except in Curse of Strahd, right? where so, they just go, you need werewolves. Yeah, so there's a lot of fun to be had with these guys as mobs, um, but you're thinking outside the box with them. Yep. Uh, next, we have um, kind of that interesting uh, cross section of Yuan-Ti and uh, lizard folk. These are your bullywogs. These are oh, your so funny. I would not categorize them that way. Oh, I'd... I find bullywogs so. I mean, we said it with our bullywog mob episode way back when. Yeah. They are undersupported. Right. Totally. Yeah. They've got some really, really cool, interesting feels to them, but it, you, you kind of gotta. Pull it out from the woodwork. There are twice as many lizard folk types as there are bullywug types. Right. So bullywugs are um, clan based. They they have their own like uh, royal uh, obsession almost. They're they, all about status. They're all about status, and and it's it's funny to me because they I, I say they're lizard folk because they're isolated out in the realms, but they would gladly bring a series of adventures in if you pay them, right? And there's there's a there's a certain, And you have to bow. And you have to bow. You have to you have to make sure you're bowing to them because 
we're bullywugs. We're better than you. Prove it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's on you to prove your inferiority. Yeah. We're not going to prove our superiority. We already know we're better. I, I find them quite honestly, uh, Adam, you're, you might not get this one, but uh, the Zora in Zelda um, fill that role to me where there's like the king and then everyone else is beneath him. Right. And he's just this gigantic fat frog man sitting in his throne room getting fed stuff and anyone into his realm has to go to him. He's Jabba the Hutt for me. Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, no. Same same kind of feel. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's uh Bullywugs fit their own unique little niche. Um they you know actually they're Gungans from Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, I see that too, yeah. Right. That's the conversation we're having here. They're a little bit goofy. They are just the way that they've been built. They're full of intrigue and backstabbing like drow are, but there's like 12 different kinds of drow and three different kinds of bullets. Well, it's because they're full of that intrigue and backstabbing, but without the competency. Like they, they, it they is, yeah, it is definitely implied that they're not good at it. Yeah, they're, they're kind of goofy. Yeah. Um, so they're great for lower level campaigns. So let's talk for a moment about another undersupported anthropomorph, and that is the Kuatoa. Now, I love the Kuatoa because they're fucking weird and they're bizarrely powerful they've been their backstory is nuts they've been driven insane by mind flayers and stuff and then they escaped slavery after generations but their insanity is and their mind warping nature of of these these literal men with gigantic like fish heads like yep. piranha heads and they've been so so insane for so long that they can will gods into existence yeah just by their what sheer... What is that? Their sheer belief. They're like legit frightening like that. However, they're so under-supported and they're just kind of over there. We'll, we'll we'll deal with them later. They show up in Ghost of Salt Marsh. They show up in um, out of the, any Any the aquatic-themed thing, they're going to be there. Yeah, and so they're, they're super, super evil. They're super crazy and chaotic. But also, if you scare one bad enough, its mind just snaps, it lays down and dies. You can scare one to death. Yeah. Just by the lore. Like there's, I love Kuatoa because they're fucking weird. But like I say, totally and completely under supported. Yeah. Um, next are your underground troglodytes. Uh, troglodytes fill that anthropomorph uh, of the weird. Um, if, if you look into, uh, is it Jules Verne that wrote the time machine? Yeah. Yeah, so if you look into the time machine where he goes and deals with the uh, Morlocks, which exist in D&D, yep. but Troglodytes kind of filled that role as well. They're very bestial. They're very um, hit you in the head with a hammer if you in- encroach on their society. Um, they're incredibly territorial, and they're almost exclusively underground. They are um, like the... The uber lizard folk. Almost. Yes, right? right. Like, and they they feel they feel that like savage lizard folk. They they're almost like um, reptilian cavemen. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I mean, they're called troglodytes. Yeah, but even though they have nothing to do with actual troglodytes, but um, the the bizarre shit to them is I don't know what animal they're supposed to represent, like. It's like a, a horny cave frog. They're they're kind of that like weird lizard plus a evolutionary uh, throwback almost. Yeah, like, like the 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 what what do they call that? The missing link, right? They're kind of that, 
Um, if I have a heavy dinosaur campaign, I'm playing with troglodytes. No, troglodytes, they serve a weird purpose, but again, they're undersupported in 5th edition, and they are meant to be, like, low-level troglodytes. Again, they've got their own weird society, but they they really do feel like reptilian cavemen. Yeah. Um, they've got a reptile feel to them, but just generic reptile, almost like... Gecko meets monitor lizard, kind of. Yeah, I, I view lizard folk as living in, like, uh, hide tents on stilts in the bayou. And troglodytes just, they have that ramshackle cave. Yeah, they and they're content to live in the cave in the dark. But they will eat anything that comes in their cave. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I mean, we talked about Kuatoa and, and Bullywugs and troglodytes. These are all kind of aquatic. But let's go underwater for a minute. I don't want to talk about sea elves. Elves are their own thing. Those aren't mobs. Elves, dwarves, even like sea elves and Eladrin. They're not mobs. They're just peoples and societies. Yeah. Um, they don't They don't quite meet the qualifications that we have here for what a mob is. Yeah. But uh, but the other thing that's that exists underwater is merfolk. Now, merfolk are... They tend to be neutral, generally speaking. They they collect aspects of the surface world and obsess over them. Eventually, get legs, but develop a mute uh, syndrome to uh, seduce a uh, human man. You are a grown ass adult male. Right. I want you. I want a you. Great Disney movie. I want you to stop with the princess shit. I when, expect that from Terry. When when do they get talking crabs that talk in a Jamaican accent, which I could do. But it will be Irish by the end of the sentence. <laughs> yep. <laughs> anyway, so so merfolk are the answer to mermaids legitimately in D&D, but they are not the top half human. They are very much like blue skinned with giant frills and, and fins and whatnot. They are weird aquatic, mostly uh, like fish based. This is where you get your idea of what a siren is in old like lore. Well, um, sirens exist in Theros. They're... Yeah, um, but like they are far more bestial. Like they're not the in... seductive. Well, no, but they are. If you look at it, their torso, their faces—they are beautiful creatures. They're just covered in in blue skin, and mm. uh, and they have fins and and uh, frills, and like they've got almost like a mohawk, you know. But it's a it's a giant fin. On they're top of their head. They, they're clearly aquatic. Absolutely, when you look and, at the top half, and the bottom half is not even like a fish tail. It's like an eel tail. It just goes off and does its own, like it it tapers off. Like yeah. That. So, but merfolk have societies. They have kingdoms beneath the waves. They have an entire um, civilization down there. And yet we only get two kinds of merfolk. Horribly, horribly undersupported. They're neutral, so they often live on the good side of things. They're willing, mm-hmm. they can be bartered with. They're yeah. not they're not out to fuck with you. Don't fuck with them. If you come across them, they'll be curious, but they may just be a little territorial too, like go away. You're not looking you could easily have them be a major feature as an ally or an enemy in an aquatic campaign. Um, the other thing that's very similar to merfolk is uh, marrow. Yep. And marrow are also built like CR2 and CR4. We get two different kinds of them, but they are the evil, evil, evil side of like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde to the Kind of, yeah. Right? Yeah. But uh, they tend to be spellcasters and they're all about shaping water and whatnot as well. They are um, they're far more bestial uh, and they've got like jagged 
teeth and crazy jaws and they're out to like get up to some evil shit but you may mistake one for the other at a quick glance mm-hmm. underwater in the dark yeah um and so running into marrow and merfolk are it's very different than the surface dwelling things because they're all about their underwater realm and i find that underwater tends to be um territorial but they're not looking to expand outwards no they may prey upon people that are you know they, on they the have, surface of the waves. They have their established lands and don't infringe upon their established lands unless you're a welcome guest. But uh, beyond that, they're not going to reach out to other worlds or sorry, to other realms of the seas even. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of your generic uh, underwater threat when you're talking, like I, I find Kuatoa aren't necessarily under ocean. Well, no, because they have hands and feet. Yeah. The Sahawagan or Sawajin or however you want to say that word um, fit that kind of the foot soldier of the aquatic campaign. Um, They are uh, not nearly organized. They do tend on the cult side of things, I find. So so they're not so militaristic as they as. you would have for your orcs and everything else, but they, uh, they, they do fit that more cult like drive to their society, but they have a fully fleshed out society to them. Um, you'll see a lot of this in ghosts of salt marsh, uh, um, with them. They are your fish men of the deep. Right? They really do feel like aquatic orcs because they're raiding, they're barbaric, yeah. but they've got some real magic to them and they've got, a. Uh, Hierarchy with kingdoms and stuff. Mm-hmm. They are the traditional bad guys that are out to fight sea elves and merfolk specifically. Yeah, they they are the biggest threat uh, of the 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 biggest like mid CR threat of under the waves when you're not talking about leviathans and krakens and things like yeah. that. So speaking of, I mean, let's go from underwater to under dark. Sure. Um, I'm just gonna hit these two really really quickly because Neblin, not supported. No. There's the one, and that's it. Um, but the Drow and the Duragar, if you're on episode 100 of a D&D podcast, we shouldn't have to explain what these guys are. Mm-hmm. But by the broad strokes, Dark Elves and Grey Dwarves. Yep. Right? These are the evil versions of the Elves and the Dwarves, generally speaking. They tend to be um, xenophobic. They're up to their own shit. There's a power struggle in the Underdark that is unique unto itself. And they are very much in the middle of it. Now the drow are very um, now the drow are very uh, religious. They believe in loth and they uh, pray to loth. They will get up into some demonic shit all of the time, and they are going to uh, be far more about intrigue and spies. and And we're dealing with a lot more subterfuge, um, whereas Doragar really just feel like an evil dwarven clan Mm -hmm. with some really crazy magical shit that they can innately do. Well, you you do hear of Duragar working alongside of like mountain dwarves and whatnot in extreme situations. You do not hear of drow working with like high elves. As a matter of fact, if you've got a drow in your party, they will be sitting on the outskirts of the elven civilization waiting for everyone else to come back. Yeah. They're just straight up not welcome. Yeah. Um, following the Underdark, we're just going to talk about the plant mobs now. Uh, the plant mobs kind of 
go into three different ways. You have your myconids, which are your mushroom people. They have hive minds. They... It's um, not just hive mind, like there's more to it than that, th- but for the most part. There is a little bit of individuality when it comes to them, but uh, they're very socialist, I guess, would be a way to put them. I would say they're almost communist. They're, yeah, they're like, it is for the greater good of the colony. Hence the red caps. Not a lot of scythes and hammers, though. Probably not, no. Sickles and hammers? I don't know, my mushroom's kind of like a hammer. Next are the Vegapygmies, since we're talking about your tiny mushrooms. Um, we have, these are the mischievous uh very tribal feeling um almost i don't find them mischievous at all that is not almost voodoo feel to the veggie pygmies yeah but they're not out for screwing i mean i often play them that way because they're they're fun but i i yeah uh in in tomb of annihilation you have your uh your twingas your you have your twingas which are kind of the good uh benevolent version of a veggie pygmy um you have your the goblin tribes that have the masks that kind of stack in a totem. I forget what they're called. I didn't play it, but it's the bow something. Anyways, they have that tribal feel to them, but they're tiny and they're evil and they uh, are cannibalistic. They tend to want to sacrifice sacrifice you to their old god. That's the feel that you have with a Vegapygmy tribe. Um in Tomb of Annihilation, maybe. Not standard. Yeah, see, not, that's normally not how they are by the stock book. In the Monster Manual, Veggie Pygmies are neutral. They're just a a vegetable, like a plant-based pygmy tribe that live in jungles and swamps and forests and whatnot. Um, Tomb of Annihilation pushed them into evil. Um, and, Outside of the Chewingas, yeah. Yeah, and so the... Well, Chewingas are not Veggie Pygmies. You're, I mean, you're right, but they, they kind of occupy the same space. In my mind. I mean, you see Twingas in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden as well. Just their snow Twingas. Twingas tend to be like almost, they cross that realm between Vegapygmy and Fey almost. Like they, they are helpful. They, they. I always look at them like the little, little mask monsters from Spirited Away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Twingas are helpful. Um, Vegapygmies are xenophobic. Mm-hmm. But they are very small. Like veggie pygmies and myconids, they tend to stay true neutral. They tend to stay um, based on their own um, territory, almost like they feel yeah. very territorial. But uh, but even twingas are technically neutral by the stat block. Yes, right. And so when it is neutral, you can swing it either way. Um, whereas blights, which are the third one, um, there's myconids because uh, there are three different kinds of myconids. There are Two different kinds of veggie pygmies, but they get thorny as well. Yeah, okay. Um, and a thorny is essentially a dog, like a guard dog made out of thorns. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's part of their conversation. Um, and then there are four different kinds of blight. The needle blight, the twig blight, the... I'm not going to get them all off the top of my head. But these are angry little evil plant monsters that run around and uh, harass low-level parties. These guys are like low, low, low. First, like tier one. Are, are we thinking like gremlins and stuff with these things or... No, not quite so much. These are just uh, like, think about a branch breaks off of a tree, spawns arms, legs, and a face, and then tries to kill you. Okay, I'm so, on board. So, um, but there are different kinds. There's a vine blight and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I will be completely outright and honest. I've never seen a blight in a game of D&D. That's a lie. I actually threw blights against you, but... I, was I around that session? Yes, you were. It was a one-shot. Um... 
and you guys ran into blights, but they hit hard and fast and then were just okay. gone. Um, blights are, there's four different kinds and they're super, super low level to the point where you don't even really recognize that they're there, which is too bad. But these guys are shock troopers that yeah. are, they're more monster out in the woods, but they do travel in packs because they're so low level. And they're undersupported. All the plant mobs are undersupported. We'll talk about those in a future episode, definitely. Okay. Um, the other one, the next one that I want to talk about is a really broad stroke here, Fey. Oh, are you trying to say that Fey is a broad category? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, now, Fey creatures do tend to move in packs. They can also be solo. They can also mix and match among each other. Talking about Fey is very strange because you have Fey courts, you have Fey markets, you have Fey encounters, you have Fey patrols. Because they exist with a different mentality, the blue-orange as opposed mm-hmm. to the black and white, it's difficult to know what you're getting into outside of the alignment scale that tends to to show you which ones will team up with other ones. Yeah. But even then, that alignment chart does not truly apply to Fey. So um, you can just be certain that when you're dealing with a mob of Fey, whatever it is, what if you're dealing with more than four or five of them at a time, you're in trouble. Yep. If they're moving in a pack, they're at the very least up to shit. And they could be up to something really important if it's going to unify them. If something will unify Fey, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, Fey, man, like, I, I, I love them. Um, there's a lot of support for them, but if you're going to bring Fey into your uh, world, they're more than just the. I keep on saying the word mischievous, but I don't mean mischievous. They're more than just that aspect of chaos. They, they, a lot of them are chaotic, but not all of them and not by damn sight. Less than half of them are. And even though there's, they are chaotic, there is a sense of order to Fey. Yeah, but it's their weird order. But it's a weird blue orange order, like we mentioned. So so I I look at it this way. Okay. The average person takes their bookshelf. My bookshelves are very Fey-like because whereas most people take a bookshelf and they will put it alphabetically by author, or they will just be chaotic and not do anything, right? They just that, jam it all that's, in there. That's more me, but yeah. <laughs> I have my bookshelf arranged in autobiographical chronological order. The order with which I received the book. That is a very fey way of looking at things. How do you keep your books organized? Because I know what order I read them in. I know what order I get them in. And it, it's been that way since I was like 14. I just, like, I, I love books. I have so many of them. But I just know that this is the order that I received them in. Mm-hmm. All right. I just kind of throw them on there and be like, eh, it's in there somewhere. I got the, my shelves categorized by like subject. No, but. The, and then that's it. No, when I want to go recapture the feeling of, of reading a book that I read when I was 16, I will go back into that headspace and I will read that book. Like it's a, it's a very personal thing for me. Yeah. But it's super fey. Oh, uh, it's super it fey, is. right? Like you don't pay fey with gold. You pay fey with buttons and hair. Right? Like, it's it's that kind of... Yeah, or with, with riddles and... Uh, Jokes. Just a bucket of gum. Was that necessary? I said gum, Dan. Oh, okay. A bucket of gum. I mean, he didn't. Are we disagreeing on, on what I said? No. Is this a jism schism? Hey! Finally, we do want to talk about the one type of uh, giant that can fit into this whole mob idea and that is your ogres um sorry just sidebar really quickly trolls could too but again they're so high powered that like yeah ogres are just that step below troll 
Well, yeah, ogres tend to round out about CR2. Trolls tend to round out about CR6, 5 or 6 in there, right? So when you run into 5 ogres, that's a good fight for a level 9 party. 5 trolls will fuck up the day of a tier 4 party. Yeah. Right? So when it comes to mobs, ogres. Yeah. So uh, ogres, I mean, they are the big dumb brute of the mob world. Um, They are all about consuming. They don't really have much goal uh, in terms of uh, conquest or setting up civilization. They tend to just be about size and power. If you have like Warhammer 40k orcs, this is where you're going to kind of feel that feed where might makes right. And and in, in every single way and form, the biggest ogre is the one in power. Yeah, but a lot of the times too, other mobs can bring them in under their under their wing. Right? They'll fit in with orcs. They'll fit in with goblins. They'll fit in with um, even some like Yuan-Ti could have some ogres. I would feel um, like you could go all the way down the list of the mobs we've given, and they fit in in most of them. Yeah, even like as long as they're placated, you just have to bribe them. They're almost mercenary. Right. The idea that you've got to bring them in and they either have to be afraid of you or love what you're giving them. They yeah. don't need power. They And they don't even really need money per se. They're they're all about base urges, I find. Yeah, and to a lesser degree, respect. Yeah. Um, they don't want to be fooled, they don't want to be made to feel stupid, even though they are very dumb. Yeah. But um you will see goblinoids specifically really leaning on ogres. Um, to flesh out as heavy hitters and almost as siege weapons within their armies. Exactly. But it is not unheard of to see a shit ton of ogres on the move, right? Now, they're not necessarily a well-organized group, but they would migrate together, right? Hey, you know what? There's a lot of forest fires here. That mage in that forest that moved in, there's a new dragon on the mountain. We're leaving. Yeah. Right? It's not worth the effort. And, um, And they tend to be big ragey monsters they are the barbarians barbarian yeah right and so they're everything a half-orc barbarian wants to be yeah exactly so before we wrap up i just want to remind everybody that you can find us on instagram facebook and r slash it's a mimic on reddit you can always reach out to us through our email at info at it's a mimic.com because we love hearing from you guys and any questions that you send us will get added to the list for upcoming mailbag episodes now adam We've talked about the mobs. We've talked about why we have mobs. We've talked about who the mobs are. Let's talk about what the mobs do. This is the strategy with mobs. Now, an often problem... Let's 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 talk about the problems with mobs in a very mechanical sense first. And then we'll talk about what we can do and some other advice for them. Sure. Um, whenever you have a mob, and I mentioned this earlier, you're going to have a problem with things like action economy and death spirals and uh the sense of uh, a bounded accuracy to them so adam i, I want to talk about these individually first so when it comes to say a uh the problem with action economy why is it such a threat with mobs all right um let, bef- before we even talk about action economy um we should probably talk about bounded accuracy. You mentioned yeah, it a we've second men- ago. We've mentioned it a few times, and I, I know we sat down, we have the breakdowns for these episodes before us. So I'm like, Adam, what the hell is bounded accuracy? And it it for someone who's been playing DD for such a long time, you explained it to me. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So for but, the for those of you that don't understand, 
Fifth edition is unique in Dungeons and Dragons because bounded accuracy, what it did was um, accuracy means, you know, what the rolls are and bounded is the fact that it, they are literally binded almost. Yeah, like the, standardized. Uh, and that's just it. Is There's max limits, right, to the rolls. And I know a lot of you guys like to homebrew and shit, but the game is balanced the way that it is. It is designed to be balanced. And I always say homebrew is fun. Reflavoring and reskinning is great. But the moment you start giving plus five weapons, the moment that you start creating your own crazy super dragon turtle, the whole game goes radically out the fucking window. Because there are some general rules about the limits of what to expect. Now, when we're talking about mobs and the action economy, you need to understand the flat math of 5th edition first. So, just buckle up for a second. Yeah. Here, here it comes. I'm going to be quick. There are limits. If this is the game design. Bounded accuracy is what we call the uh, general limits on how the rolls are and what we can expect our maximums to be when it comes to rolling dice, even when we're adding modifiers. Right? These are the maximum limits that we can get. So here they are. Your ability score can get to a maximum of 20. This is a general rule. I know that you guys are out there screaming, I had a druid once that was great. Sure, that's fine. But for the most part, exceptions aside, the maximum ability score is 20. A maximum difficulty class is 30. So your spell save DC or your ability to roll an athletics check or whatever, you never need more than 30. Maximum AC on anything ever is 30. If somehow you've ended with a 35, you are... Homebrewing. Homebrewing, most or, likely. Yeah, or we're starting to see the power creep in later books, right? Uh, but it's designed to be ability score 20, DC 30, AC 30. There's a maximum ability bonus of plus 5, because you get that from your 20. Yeah. And a maximum proficiency bonus of plus 6, meaning that you get to add a plus 11. Now, this is important because the idea of a crit always succeeding is a part of bounded accuracy. So rolling a nat 20 doesn't apply uh, modifiers. It just works. The same way that a 1 doesn't just fail. Only a 20 just works. But this is in combat mostly. Uh, specifically combat, yes. Yeah. Which means that when you need to hit an AC of 30 or a DC of 30, you need to roll a 19. If a 20 already wins, that plus 5 for your ability bonus and the plus 6 of your accuracy bonus or your proficiency bonus equals a plus 11. 11 plus 19 is 30. There's the math. Yeah. You never have to worry about going over that. Because they want um, the average to be 10, the superhero to be 20, and there to be yet even further threats like gods and tarasks and krakens. That hit the 30. That th Those will hit the 30, right? So that even your heroes need to band together in a party of 3 to 5 to be able to fight them. Yeah. Right? So... This is as opposed to 3.5 or Pathfinder or, um, what is it, uh, Mutants and Masterminds, right? Where they've got other mechanical ways of figuring it out. They've got other math bases so that you can get a plus. I remember in 3.5, I had a plus 47 to one stat at one point. Yeah. Uh, when you have a stealth of plus 47, what is the fucking point <laughs> as a DM? Well, I see, and I look at that, and I, I, I go, this is one of the reasons why we have expressed our frustrations with uh, things like expertise and uh, reliable talent uh, because it kind of goes against this bounded accuracy system that they've clearly established in the game. Well, I don't mind them doing that, but it focuses on something else. And where you have a combat 
game, which D&D is the most combat-heavy role-playing game that is out there. Um, when when you focus that heavily on combat, that means the DM tool, the DM toolbox, is meant to pull on social and environmental puzzles and riddles, um, dynamic encounters and shifting ideas, um, like behind the scenes. And so when you have people that can just skip that, when all of a sudden you notice the bounded actually doesn't talk about maximum speed, mm-hmm. right, or social encounters, right? That's not what it gets into. It, it's the combat. It's for combat, yeah. And so when you have people that can just bypass that stuff, it makes it difficult for a DM. Um, so we complain about that, but it's really necessary. And I appreciate that because if you tend to have expertise, you're not good on combat. Like there is generally a trade-off. We're getting into the era of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything where power creep is now a thing. Yes, yeah. But your original design was, in my opinion, very balanced for the first handful of books, all except the Purple Dragon Knight, but we do not give creed or credit to that <laughs> shit. But for the most part, it is, um, it's very well balanced because it gives us the ability to have the action economy, which means that even a minion, even your low level plus one, you can, with your dice, beat the average character's AC. On a straight roll. Yeah. Your mobs, anyone in the mob can still hit. That was not the case in earlier editions. No, you would, I, I, I vividly remember like a, a Dwarven Defender character just walking in with a 37 to AC. And he was level 6. Yeah, they're like, going to stop me from moving forward. They're going to grapple me to I sit still. So I will just cave their skulls in until this is over. Everybody else, go grab a drink. I'm going to roll dice with a DM because I can't get hurt. Yeah. So it doesn't matter anymore. And and like it, it made min maxing so important in the game. Whereas now they have really flattened that math. When you hear about fifth editions, flat math, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. So with the action economy being the way that it is having just merely seven attacks on the enemy side to the five attacks on the hero side means that the enemy has a great advantage. Mm-hmm. Now modifiers, dice rolls going on a hot streak all of this matters the idea of uh, advantage now suddenly comes into play in a big way yeah uh, bardic inspiration comes into play in a big way the lucky feet comes into play fucking halflings right <laughs> so um there's there's a lot of these um new mechanics that we're getting into now that we are granted because we have the action economy and because we have bounded accuracy and that builds it so that our mobs still stay relevant. Yeah. You do not need 43 goblins on the field, even for a CR 18 enemy. Well, the thing is, and this is what helps us control our mobs in the end, because you don't need to have 43 mobs on uh, creatures on the table anymore, because the action economy has led itself, as long as you have, you know, more than the players in terms of actions you could do, you are coming out ahead, most likely. Yeah. Right. And so, and that that gets exponentially more dangerous as you, uh, as one players drop and two mobs get added. So if if there is, um, you've got this flat math, you've got this bounded accuracy, uh, and then you've got the action economy on top of that. Um, it's really made it so the system is more um, more open to be learned and understood by the by the average player which yep. has made it simpler to play 
which has opened the doors. And that's why we've seen such a massive rise in popularity for D&D. Now, isolation and whatnot being added on top of that this year has also pushed it because now people can play a game rather easily over Zoom. But the... Did you know that Rackham... You, remember we used to talk about Rackham all the time? I in the miss early, Rackham. You know Rackham is not as active on social media and stuff anymore because she is playing in six weekly D&D games. Welcome to COVID land. Well, well, she's also streaming now too. I know, but like she just doesn't stop. And we have the ability to do that. We didn't have the ability to no. do that like in 3.5. Could you imagine playing AD&D over zoom where like you were describing the maps my ad and hd would not have let me do that so (laughs) but so we've talked about the action economy we've talked about the uh um, bounded accuracy we've hinted at this idea of death spirals where the action economy can really play against your party if you have one person drop action economy just the way it is this is kind of a problem with dnd 5e is these death spirals can happen a lot easier this is one of the reasons especially why I think... Especially at low level. Especially at low level. Like, this is one of the reasons why I think they've made it so survivable in D&D as well. With the death saves and the lots of abilities. as like, you hit zero hit points, but then you get up with one. That are that almost every class has a very... Fuck, spare the dying. Right? Um, they've put that in to counteract this idea of a death spiral. Because the action economy is the main weapon, in my opinion, of a DM. It absolutely is. And... When you're dealing with mobs, you have to look really carefully. And when we start to go through the episodes with mobs and we like everybody pay attention to multi-attack because that shit changes everything. Yep. Um, so simply having the number of attacks on the board equal to the number of attacks that the players can do, that is a far closer game than you realize. Because now these shiny, sparkly little math rocks that we roll matter. They really matter yeah. in a big way. In ways that they didn't matter for you. Your ability modifier and your character crafting mattered more than what you rolled on the dice in previous editions. Now the dice and the randomization matters more. The other issue that we have besides Death Spiral, though, is the fact that how do we... We're faced with the problem of um, implying the idea of an army or a mob, but we can't give one to the players or they'll just fucking die. Yeah. Right? So... Can you imagine as a level 5 fighter walking into a horde, a literal horde of goblins? And and this is this is the thing. Like, you can... Sure, you can have your uh, 20th level wizard who is flying above the horde dropping meteor on them using Wish to wipe out those guys over there to drop that bridge out. But there's still the fucking army. There's the horde. A single... A guy, a single party, is not enough to wipe out an army anymore. No. That was totally the case in previous editions, right? Which is why we have Elminster and Vecna and these, and and even uh, Xanathar. We have these big, massive Tasha-level um, uh, icons in D&D who had that power to do it in the past. Mm-hmm. They are very much still able to do it by lore, but by mechanics, your heroes will never get to that level. No. So how do we, as dungeon masters, let them feel that way without running up against a death spiral? That's a major fucking issue that that I struggle with. The, how to keep the epic scope without giving a like impassable issue? Um, quite often, I mean, there's a couple ways you could approach it. For me, um, description and implication go miles. Yep. Um, 
you're coming into a fight against an army in D&D 5e, um, and if you're coming in it as a single party with no reinforcements, um, it is less likely that you have done something wrong and more likely that me as the DM has done something wrong. Absolutely. Um, because I have not given you the opportunities to find allies because what I want when I'm having a like massive army battle, I'm giving goals for my small party to go and accomplish in the battle. And then the battle has become description. It has become environment. Yeah. Right? It gets a new narrative every time that it's almost like a layer action. On, it, yeah. On uh, a 20 count. Exactly. Right. right? Um, where that army does this, this army does that. And you're seeing this go back and forth. I'm not taking off like 20 miniatures on a table in this go because that is just going to bog down and slow down the game. This is not Warhammer. It's not Risk. No. Right? This is not... As much as it is a war game, it's really a battle game. It's a skirmish game. It's not a war game. If you want to imp- uh, have that aspect of war game in your D&D session, then there are ways to do it where you are, you know, accomplishing the small goal that takes out this group of uh, monsters or um, this... this You've set up this defense beforehand, which has slowed it down in this way, right? It's that level of stuff. But if you are fighting a mob on 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 par, uh, sorry, uh, on the same battlefield and you're using a battle map and you have battle miniatures out, then as a DM, the way I'm doing it, assuming everything built up to this point has been done correctly, I'm doing it in waves, like at... Your party will fight these 10 guys and you have to make it through 10 waves. Yep. And sometimes you say you've got this many rounds before the next wave comes. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, there's an indicator of when this lieutenant goes down, another lieutenant will come forward with his, you know, battalion or like whatever it is. So there are different ways of of handling this. I want to talk really quickly about the idea of minions as well. Now, a minion is a fourth edition thing that we've brought Gasp. Right. And I... Now, at the point of us recording this, I'm not certain. I haven't looked in Tasha's yet, but I think they cut. They touch on minions as well. I hope so. It, because it's, it's one of the few things 4th edition did right. Yeah, and minions are the stat block of the creature, but with one single hit point. So a single hit kills. Uh, however, if it makes a save, then it just wins. Mm-hmm. So the deck save on Fireball, it doesn't take half damage. It just wins. It stays up. Right? Whereas... Anything that fails goes down. Yeah. One, right? So um, minions at face value, super weak, and you should be able to wipe them out en masse. But remember, if you're bringing minions in like that, it means you're bringing in a lot of them at once. And if they all have multi-attack or just a ranged attack so that they can get more hits in than your guy with a sword can in a round, then you're in trouble. And so this is like minions are great, but you got to use them sparingly. They're great for reinforcements. Mm -hmm. Now, um, talking about um, the impression of a mob or an army or a horde, whatever it is, you start to become, like you said, environmental, right? Where you are describing what's happening around you. Um, There's a shifting battlefield. You have objectives in the middle. You're dealing with wave after wave. Sure, that's, that's fine. But how do you give the impression of an army when you're not in a battle? In, a, in an army battle. And that is, um, this is by using things like patrols mm-hmm. and scouts 
and the hunters and the spies where you give the impression of overwhelming uh, odds, these huge, massive sweeping forces way the fuck over there that are going to be coming this way if you don't do something about it. I view armies a lot of the same way I view the way we run like the Tarask in our groups, right? Uh, the Tarask often has a name like the mountain that moves, right? It is a... Different than the mountain that rides. Yeah. Uh, not talking about Thor. Um, the Thor, uh, whatever his name is. Oh, his half, real name half, is Thor. Half Thor Bjornsson, I guess is what his name is. Strongest sure. man, the guy who played the mountain. Yeah. Well, one of the guys. There were three guys. Yeah. Well, the... the best one. All, all of them stacked upon the others. <laughs> That's how I picture him. Yeah. He's actually really tiny. He's just an amalgamation of three dudes in a trench coat. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Okay. So, uh, three gnomes in a trench coat. Yeah, yeah. Just in a big bodysuit. <laughs> Anyways, um, it was this massive imposing threat that we knew beyond any uncertain terms, there was no way we were going to fight it head on. Right. Yep. You felt the effects of it um, in our world with like it moving around. Of course, the ground's going to shake. There's earthquakes going around that are getting more and more intense as this thing gets on. And it's got to get more intense as time goes on. And it's the exact same way with your armies. Your armies are on the horizon and you're dealing with gradually more um, dangerous threats coming towards you. Uh, larger parties coming your way. Um, parties that know more information your way, right? Uh, you're going to deal with your spies first and then you're going to start seeing scouts and then you're going to start getting hunters, hunters and patrols and, and patrols yeah. before you start digging into the armies itself. And this is why it is so important to have a conversation, not just about what an orc horde looks like, but about what the subsections of the horde, the guard patrol scouts, so yeah. right? Um, do and how they impact the overall narrative and story before you even get to combat because combat itself is going to be relatively the same i mean you're going to have different monsters filling different roles they're going to have different objectives and you can make it incredibly dynamic but from a dungeon master perspective, perspective yeah uh, you really only have a handful of ways to um, keep it super fucking interesting um, outside of just roll initiative, let's go. Yeah. Right. And, and I don't just mean like surprise and ambush, but there are a handful of other um, bits and pieces that you can use when dealing with mobs. Um, the first one that comes to mind is retreating, right? A lot of people fight to the death in D&D. They shouldn't. Absolutely not. Especially with intelligent creatures. Gnolls will fight to the death. Zombies will fight to the un, un, undeath. They'll fight to your death. The non-death. Yeah. Um, but the... The the, immo- the the inanimate? The re-death? Yeah. The the lying down for the last time? The Dan at the end of a workday death? Yeah. God. So um, they will get to that to, to that point and they will keep pushing. But goblins, uh, merfolk... Oh, they'll run away. They'll run away. I mean, right? God knows what a Kuatoa is going to do depending on how you're running Kuatoa. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Some of them may just fall down and die outright from the fear. That guy's in the corner masturbating. Like they're just, <laughs> God knows what a fucking Kuatoa, it all smells like fish. But the whole thing um, about mobs is that you need to know their level of um, intelligence, but not just like how well book read they are or how uh, smart they are or how much wisdom they have, but about their um, social awareness or their environmental awareness as well. Here's the thing about real armies and real battles you know when your side is losing to the point where you cannot uh, win, period. And so there is real 
retreating and there is surrendering if you don't retreat mm-hmm. right there are a couple of other ways that you can keep this um this dynamic and interesting you said bringing in waves after waves which is in my head reinforcements yes and a lot of the time i want to tell the party that reinforcements are coming ahead of time i want someone to blow a horn or one person runs away i'll go get the others and then they disappear yeah and you know you've got like clicking or ticking clock right so and I tend to not want to pull the curtain on this one. I, I, I've always said like I'm, I'm fairly open with the meta side of things with my players as I'm going. Like I'll, I'll it's a game. Be, they have to know the rules, right? So there'll be some times where I'd be like, there are two turns before reinforcements arrive, and I'll let them know. Other times I just go, reinforcements are coming. Hard stop. Yeah. You don't know when they're going to be here, but they're coming quick. Yeah. Right, and if you're nearer the army, the quicker they're going to get here. And this is where you come with the tasks for encounters too. You were talking about that, yeah. all the tasks within encounters when you're running in a war situation. One of the things that I want to mention, I don't think that people understand this when we're talking about action economy. I've mentioned this a couple of times in the past throughout our many many episodes. I think I mentioned in the campaign builder once. Yeah. And, um, but you will get further ahead. Knocking people off the initiative order, then spreading your your um, attacks evenly among everybody. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind that if all five of your players are attacking the one knoll of the four, on the next round, there will only be three knolls hitting them. And the round after that, there will only be two knolls hitting them. And that means that they are taking less and less damage every round. That is a knoll death spiral. Yeah. You have to keep in mind as a DM... That you will be doing the same thing. If everyone targets the weak mage first to take them out, when that mage <laughs> Shoot drops. Shoot the one in the dress. Yeah, right. When the mage drops, you've not only removed them, but you've also probably removed someone else for at least one round yep. who's trying to heal or stabilize, right? So now all of your enemies, all of your mob members can attack the remaining three of five. Well, now. Only 60% of your guys are up on the field in combat. So they're doing 60% of their overall damage output as well. So the mob is going to last longer. This is why there's a death spiral. Mm -hmm. This is how things get totally out of fucking control. So DMs, I see this question all the time. What happens when an encounter is too easy or too difficult? I see it as well with parties that don't work together. And Oh, we tried to do this, but then that guy over there was fighting on... The idea of cohesion as a unit. You can have this same basic structure of five orcs be far deadlier, not only by including environment, which we we hit that nail repeatedly uh, on this podcast. Yep. Right? But besides just changing environment, by having all five orcs... On the same page. On the same page, working together to wipe out that guy first. It's a fuck of a lot different focusing on the barbarian than it is focusing on the cleric. Because when the cleric goes down, they're fucked. And now when you bring in reinforcements or you retreat to go get reinforcements, this is scary, guys. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas if every orc is doing eight points of damage to every single character, every round, those characters will keep standing. Yeah. Me as a DM, I will have different tactics in there. And the only thing I need to do to make it easier or harder on the fly, I don't readjust hit points. 
I don't suddenly give someone higher AC. This guy can't suddenly turn invisible. You'll just spread out the damage a yeah. little bit if 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 it's or looking, focus it or focus it right. Like if your party's stomping through, you'll focus. If your party's unexpectedly getting hammered, you might spread it out a bit just to give them a bit of a chance. And that's a peek behind the screen, right? Yep. And the other thing that I will do as well is I will have my like every member of the mob should have a health potion. They may not get to it. And it should smash by the time that they die, right? So that the party can't get all of these health potions. But when you get down to the cleric and the rogue are left, and you got three guys down, and the cleric is healing the fighter in the corner, and the rogue is hiding, right? The ranger's on death saves, and the barbarian is face down, and a bottle of his own blood, right? And your guys are like, okay, we can all just keep hitting the barbarian for auto death coming. But I don't want to kill my players. This was a random fucking encounter against a scouting party. <laughs> yeah. So what I can do is I'm going to have them try to capture. These three are going to capture the cleric. That guy is going to try to get a beat on the rogue. But these two over here are now downing health potions or taking the health potions over to the leader. Mm-hmm. Or like really sit there and focus on what are the attacks? What are the deadliness of the attacks? And will your guys use the deadliest attack all of the time? Knolls will always go for the kill. Knolls are scary. Demons as well. Because they're going to take down that guy first. And then that guy. And then that guy. They know. Focus and kill. Yeah, but your your Kuatoa... Uh, sorry, not your Kuatoa. Your drow. Your, your goblins, drow, your goblins. They might take prisoners. They want slaves, right? Yeah. And so they're going to go after that. They're going to try to knock you down. Sometimes you can have Mykonids that just want to... They just want you to leave. Or they want spore servants. Or they want... Like, there are different ideas here. Your merfolk may want to just take out the guy in charge so that we can now have a conversation. Yes, but then you start breaching that category where if your party's actually doing very, very well and um, whatever the desires of the army or mob are going to be are impeded by uh, your party's presence, the mob will leave. And then you've got to think of... When you're building these encounters, what is the point where your army surrenders? What is your part uh, point when your army retreats? Um, now, surrendering and retreating are different. Retreat is, you know, live to fight again another day. Surrendering is, okay, we give up. You guys win. Yeah. Take, right? Here we go. We are prisoners of war. And, and like, what is that point for your mob? And what is that point for your party? And you got to think in mind, like, keep in mind as well with your mob that Knowles will never surrender. A Kuatoa that surrenders is just trying to live until tomorrow. Yeah. A Hobgoblin that surrenders acknowledges that you are the superior in combat. I will be your prisoner and we will renegotiate with my general for a prisoner swap at another time. Like there are different ideas of when it is appropriate or or not appropriate yeah. for there to be a surrender. And what a surrender means, right? You can have some fae that are going to surrender. But are they really? Are they really? Yeah. <laughs> or, are, no. A, a surrender for a fae is, huh, I could... Stab them in the back while they sleep. Cool. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of different ways to look at strategy for mobs. So there are really here three different ways or three different layers to think about this. Layer one is what is your mob? Orcs, devils, merfolk, like whatever it is. What is your mob? Yeah. And then you look at how is your mob structured? Am I dealing with guards, patrols, scouts, then things like that? Yeah. And then you look at what are the tactics that this specific one is going to use. 
And all of that, like when you're trying to figure out what your mob is, that is going to be when you figure out what your mob's goal are. That's going to be a part of that first decision. And that will impact all of the other two steps, right? Yeah. Um, so when you're trying to figure out what the tactics are of the army, depends on what their goals are, right? And and to be clear, we've just taught you how to use a horde as an entire fucking campaign. Yeah. There it is. And every single horde is going to be different. If you want to include political intrigue to the enemy side, the only thing you need to do is have two leaders with opposing goals. Mm-hmm. And that's it, right? And these guys, this guy runs all of the guards and the and civilians, and this guy runs the spies and the scouts, right? And and now they're opposed to each other. What does that mean? How does that add an extra the schism in the middle of this? How do you get them to get along, or how do you rectify the situation? And and can the players capitalize upon these? Yeah. And so this is these are the basic breakdowns of how to use mobs. Where it's not just a lich has minions, which we see a lot of. A dragon has minions. A lich has minions. Uh, whether it's a Sararak or Acerak, however you want to... A Sararak. That's how I say it. But well, That's uh, how Chris Perkins says it. Uh, good. All right. So, um, <laughs> and, or, thus, and thus, that is how it is. Fight me. <laughs> but uh, whether or not it's, it's Vecna or a lich or whatever it is, we're so used to seeing minions. And just lots and lots of minions. Well, let's talk about what these guys are like when they're fully fleshed out people like soldiers in the army. Yep. Right. Civilians, part of this society. And so the next few episodes, uh, potentially more depending on how long COVID goes. Well, obviously there are a ton of different mobs. We're going to start systematically going through them. Yeah. Um, and we're going to lean on our own minions. Minions. I guess. No, no. Minions. Yep. Without reservation. Um, and uh, some of them have one hit point, Brad. We're coming after you, bud. <laughs> Haven't been getting that mail, bitch. <laughs> so, um, well, you know, he has to sanitize and stuff, and that's a yeah. God knows he should have been doing that this whole time. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so as we continue moving forward, keep in mind all of these um, tactics because this is the framework with in which we will be talking. Yeah. Um, over the next few uh, few episodes, at the very least, potentially a lot more. Um, and let us know. Send us messages or comment on this episode or the social media post that accompanies it and whatnot. Let us know, um, A, what was your favorite episode so far? Yeah. Because we're, we're curious. Because, um, yay, 100. Um, but B, also, what's your favorite mob and what do people not understand about that mob? Yeah, because let's be completely honest. Our, our view here could and is likely to have been different from what you have experienced with your awesome D&D narratives in the past. So let us know, like, how have mobs been used interestingly on your table as well? Yeah, we are going to really focus on what is canon in 5th edition only. Yes. So, um, and what what the mechanics imply, right? Because there are some things like a higher wisdom score over a higher charisma score implies something different. Depending on which skills you're given, or what traits you're given, or what actions you're given, or what's buried in the flavor text in Volos, or hidden somewhere in Ghost of Saltmarsh, or wherever, um, there are definite implications on how these uh, these mobs operate that the average person may not understand when they just flip past the stat block sitting there in the monster manual. Exactly. So, um, so yes, reach out and let us know um, how you feel about these mobs, and keep this episode in mind. As we move forward. Well, 
that'll be it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you could head over to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button or tell your friends and the rest of your D&D party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. And don't forget to come back next week when we'll be crowdsourcing specifics on mobs by reaching out to our own mob. We're going to be celebrating social distancing by embracing all of those monsters who travel in packs. So buckle up for the next foreseeable future when you... So buckle up for the foreseeable future when we hit you with wave after wave of these terrifying hordes, one at a time. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. Okay, Adam, um, we have been talking about mobs this entire episode. We have been um, going back and forth, celebrating the fact that we've made it 100 episodes of the regular podcast, plus countless, I mean, probably not countless, you've probably got a number in your head of total episodes we've done up until this point. Feels countless, though, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. It's been a busy two years. Um, I've kind of got two questions, and I'm trying to decide which one to do. Sure, yeah, hit me. What do you got? Well, let's do both. It's 100 episodes. It's 100 episodes, and it's just the two of us. So, what is the single episode we have done that you are the most proud of up until this point? Okay. Okay, let's roll. I got a 15. I got a 14. Okay, uh, honestly, whenever somebody says, uh, whenever they mention the podcast... There are two things that come up in my brain. One is episode nine, which was the big... That's um, the party... That's the party politics one where I broke down my really hard go at, at session zeros and, yeah. you know, fuck you, love each other. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the general rule of don't be a dick. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, and that got a lot of positive feedback right off the beginning. Still does. Like, and, we're, we're two years in and I still get mentions and, and uh, questions about session zeros and party politics and how do I deal with this trouble player and stuff like that. Yeah. And honestly, it's been, I mean, obviously Wizards of the Coast listen to the podcast. I say that every time uh-huh. because Sponsor there, us. there is a section in Tasha's that's dedicated to session zero and it's about damn time. Jeremy Crawford has said outright that if they were to build the uh, DMG now, it would include session zero and all future editions will have a session zero as part of your stock D and D like experience about damn time exactly so i feel like we were ahead of the curve on that one and um we also hit it before black lives matter and everything else was kicking off like we've come to a more progressive and a more inclusive um hobby and scenario and i i feel like we we hit that just before that yeah we had some good timing on that one yeah so i i feel like really happy with that but honestly the one that sticks out of my mind as being my favorite content the episode that i go back to listen to or when i'm like hey are you interested in our podcast? Check out this one first. Is always our one on White Dragons. Really? Yeah. And my reasoning for that is because that was... I saw the light come on in Terry's eyes when we started talking about um, a lair beneath a frozen lake. And mm. suddenly we went from being... You know, in general, we're, we're talking about, oh, Dungeons and Dragons and this is how you use a sword. And like we upped our game on that episode when we hit our inspirational stride yeah and that carried us right i saw terry's eyes light up i was suddenly really excited about 
dragons. I don't give a fuck about dragons. Dragons are boring <laughs> as shit to me. Especially now that without the auras, without the spell casting, without all of the other complaints. Listen, listen to the what th- two dozen dragon episodes we have it, uh, by this point. Yeah, and but honestly, so it's not quite two dozen. Feels like it, but um, two dozen hours maybe. Um, <laughs> but no, the the thing about dragons is. It's a foregone conclusion that you'll run into one eventually. Yeah. They're all relatively the same. And, I mean, as different as they are, and we've dedicated episodes to them, you know what you're getting into when you get into a dragon scenario. You're not surprising even new players are not getting surprised with dragons. So I find them boring, and then we did White Dragons, and I'm like, holy shit, these are amazing. So uh, it changed my perspective on uh, what I can do creatively as a DM. So that was my answer for... Uh, for me, it would be the, um, the early world building. Like we've, we've already discussed that, you know, um, one of my big passions in this game is building a good world and, and, and building a, a awesome, cohesive, uh, real feeling world. And our, our world building episodes from the very beginning to me have been a strong point. And it's what you and I sat down three years ago at this point initially and we're like so what are we going to do oh we're going to do this weird fancy thing what did we call it town time town time right we even had like logos made i have a cup uh my nalgene cup that i have for water at work that has the town time logo on it because i was super excited and drew it on it but we we had that going and um we 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 couldn't find the stride until we had that third person come in and oh yeah terry was a game changer yeah so um, those early world building going into what became the campaign builder series and, um, will continue to be the campaign builder series going forth from here. Um, those have been by far my favorite episodes to recommend to people, um, for kind of the same reason, right? They were what we always wanted to do. And when you and I get to sit down and talk about like building and in- the intricacies of a living, breathing world, that's when I find that spark of enjoyment um talking about classes and races is fun um we give me a lot of shit on the podcast because i'm a bit of a min maxer but at this point 5e isn't built towards min maxing at this point no um so the world building is where i could really stretch that uh creative muscle so those were by far my favorite episodes there's gonna be a long post-credit thing because now it's the second question Yeah. what's your second question We've been talking about mobs. Yeah. And I really lot- thought you were going to ask what my least favorite episode was. I I mean, what is it? A uh, Fighters. First Fighters. First Fighters. Yeah. 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 F- fight Champion, Battlemaster, and I think Eldritch Knight. Yeah. That one was so off the rails at the beginning of that episode. Yeah, it got, it got weird. Yeah. And it got... That, that was our... I cannot believe we published about 20 minutes of that episode. And it still comes back like people will want to listen to the back catalog and they'll get to Fighters 1 and go, uh, guys, we'll be like, just, just skip. Just, well, just skip 20 minutes in. Yeah, yeah. right. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that one. Okay. Right. We're, so, we're going to do a Redux Fighters 1 at some <laughs> point so that that shit's going to get pulled out the end and scrubbed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, a lot of times with mobs, we find that they're going to be the same, uh, kind of category of racial makeup right like your mobs are going to be a bunch of orcs or a bunch of goblins yep if you are mixing uh in your campaign like orcs have taken over a goblin tribe or 
the I devils love- are using uh, the um, undead hordes or whatever you want to put that. If you are building a really um, diverse mob, yeah. what are the three mob groups you go for? I would like to point out that after I say how great we were about episode nine, you come in with a mixed races question. Jesus, Dan. All right, let's go. <laughs> I got a 15. I got an 11. You're up first. Um, I mean, you cannot go wrong with... Uh, oh, and goblinoids is cheating. Because uh, that's, it comes built in with three different I, goblinoid races. No, I want to be specific. When you're saying which goblin you bring it, which goblinoid you bring in, yeah. be specific. Um, orcs with bugbear assassins. Sure. Um... And I always have always loved to bring in um, ogres with them. Yeah, well, you orcs, like, ogres, uh, goblins—they all come together. You and like to go big and scary, right? I, I I like to go traditional fantasy with my armies of orcs and goblins and ogres, and um, just I don't find orcs are mass ground troops. Like they don't—they're not fodder to me. Every mm-hmm. single orc is a threat, packs a massive punch. Whereas a goblin, not so much. You, Especially when you get to mid-tier and later tier, uh, a goblin, um, where still a threat, is not as much of one in my play, in my frame of mind, right, going forward. So I like mixing those together to uh, really build some interesting flavor to my mobs. I am going to go a little bit outside of, of the realm on this one. I'm going to say that I want to start off with uh, with gnolls. Okay. And you don't do gnolls without talking about demons. Yep. And now, right there, I it's scary. Mm-hmm. Like, that is that is not... That is a fast-moving zombie horde. Right? Like, that that's what you have. They're not... There's no parlaying with them. You're not going to negotiate with their with their leaders. They're coming and they're going to fight to the last man. Yeah. Right? Um, and... Um, I mean, I, no matter what it is, you can always throw Yugoloths. Yeah, yeah because they're mercenaries, right? And they're fiends, so they're going to fit with the demons. If you're if you have Yinagu, I mean, there are definitely some feisty, um, like scary, like the, I think it's a the Dareloth that that exists in I want to say Mordenkainen's. Okay, um, and <laughs> really but, stretching the res- reservoir of information there. Yeah, but um, it they're essentially just a a barrel with a bug head and five arms that whirlwind. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those things. Yeah. Like they're scary. And so I like fits the gnolls. Um, specifically with gnolls, I would also bring in, um, Minotaur because if you listen to the, uh, Warlocks patrons episode, we did way. I absolutely, I absolutely would not because Minotaurs and gnolls are, are they sometimes fight. They sometimes get along. And, um, the idea of having a, you know, gnoll horde with a couple like, massive uh baphomet minotaurs with your yanagu gnolls just sounds really really cool to me and then there's going to be infighting they're going to be trying to one-up each other and because both of them are about savagery and brutality that infighting isn't just you know that only counts as one that i'm going to rip that gnoll's head off with my minotaur right and it gives your party something to exploit as well i also don't include minotaurs being a mob I mean, they could be. Nope. <laughs> you want to know my other favorite mob, by the way, just like sidebar on this, is um, UNT. Yeah. I've gonna, done yeah. a little bit of digging into UNT recently. And the idea of 
of bringing them on board with something like lizard folk and then undead because they do a lot of mummification and shit too. They're all yeah. like pyramid themed. That's a really cool campaign flavor that I don't see anywhere in fifth ed. Uh, it's, it's in, um, tomb of annihilation, tomb of annihilation. Yeah. C- kind of heavily. Is it actually? Oh, heavily yeah. In it? yeah. Yeah. The UNT play a massive feature in, in the tomb of annihilation. I noticed that they got a spotlight in Volos. And then I didn't see them in anything else. Tomb of yeah. Annihilation is a blind spot for me. Uh, Tomb of Annihilation, like the later half of it, before, like the later half of the campaign, um, or let's say the later 40% before the last 10%, which is the Tomb of Annihilation, um, is all about Yuan-Ti. So Okay. Yeah. Um, for me, one that I would really like to dive a little bit further into is like Myconids. I don't see enough Myconid stuff especially when you go into like zugmatoy and um you could go with the fungal based i zombies. love watching you pronounce demon lord names because it's zugmatoy i just mix it up it's fine you really I, I, I have verbal dyslexia i guess i don't Let, know let's talk about nyarlathotep <laughs> <laughs> nyarlathotep that's the one fuck <laughs> i gotta say that's the thing i'm most proud of is our call of cthulhu shit yeah, hey, it. Um, I haven't been allowed to listen to any of the new seasons, so I'm assuming it's good. It's uh, it's it's pretty good. I'm really happy with. I'm really happy with how even the new players to Call of Cthulhu have like owned this shit. Yeah. Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs>